time to play ball. Welcome to the podcast with no limits. Whether it be sports, current events, or random thoughts, this is the place to step in and stay a while. Your host is a proud alumnus of Rio Hondo Prep, a former minor league baseball umpire, and a man with strong opinions. Welcome to the Get Home Safe podcast and your host, Matt Persima. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Get Home Safe. It is Friday, June 26, 2020. Another week in the books, another fun week of shows. Really appreciate everyone for tuning in, everyone who's been on the show. I want to get right to it today. We have a very long interview with uh, our guest today, Major Bill Lee of the Marine Corps. Uh, just a fun interview. It goes a long time, as I mentioned. So uh, you may have to chop it up in a couple different uh, sections. There's about three long sections, but uh, however you got to listen to it, be sure to, to check it all out because Bill had a lot of great things to say and was just an absolute pleasure uh, chatting with someone of his caliber, just a, a great man, a, a man who wants to train young men um, to grow into better men. Um, he's a man who has two young daughters. Uh, I know he's very proud of that. He's proud of his work in the Marine Corps. He's proud of his background in Rio Hondo Prep, uh, Cary Youth League. Uh, his other brothers, uh, one has been on the show, one will be on the show soon. So uh, just a lot to cover. We're going to get to it. I promise you that. I don't want to uh, discard any, any of our segments uh, that we have uh, this week. I do want to get to one uh, shortly. Our our new Friday segment we have with that's called Suds with Studs. <laughs> Just a little uh, little corny something, but something I started to put together or wanted to put together uh, regarding just a guy, a hero uh, that, that I would love to, to sit down and have a beer with. And, and uh, last week we had Mr. William Harvey Carney, who was the first uh, black man to uh, be awarded the, the Medal of Honor. Today we have another uh, Medal of Honor winner, uh, his name is uh, Kyle Carpenter. Official name is William Kyle Carpenter. Um, it was actually suggested to me by uh, Bill Lee. Um, a, he wanted. He mentioned the name. I said, "Hey, uh, what was that guy you mentioned? Uh, the Marine who won the the uh, Medal of Honor." He and he sent me the um, he sent me the guy's information. Um, I don't think Bill ever knew him um, from from what he told me, but it was someone that uh, it stuck out to him and. Uh, he he wanted to uh, to pass it along, so I said, "Okay, well, that's a perfect guy that we can talk about for our Friday segment, uh, Suds with Studs." So uh, here here is a little information on Lance Corporal William Kyle Carpenter. Uh, he's actually uh, the youngest living Medal of Honor recipient, born in 1989. Um, Let's just get right into uh, the citation. Bear with me for a second as I read it for you. I don't want to mess anything up. So here is uh, the citation for a Medal of Honor winner, the youngest living Medal of Honor winner, William Kyle Carpenter. For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty while serving as an automatic rifleman and Company F 2nd Battalion 9th Marines Regimental Combat Team, 1st Marine Division, Forward 1, 1 Marine Expeditionary Force in Helmand Province, Afghanistan, in support of Operation Enduring Freedom on 21 November 2010. Lance Corporal 
Carpenter was a member of a platoon-sized coalition force comprised of two reinforced Marine squads partnered with an Afghan National Army squad. The platoon had established patrol base Dakota two days earlier in a small village in the Marja district in order to disrupt enemy activity and provide security for the local Afghan population. Lance Corporal Carpenter and a fellow Marine were managing a rooftop security position on the perimeter of patrol base Dakota when the enemy initiated a daylight attack with hand grenades, one of which landed inside their sandbag position. Without hesitation, and with complete disregard for his own safety, Lance Corporal Carpenter moved forward toward the grenade in an attempt to shield his fellow Marine from the deadly blast. When the grenade detonated, his body absorbed the brunt of the blast, severely wounding him, but saving the life of his fellow Marine. By his undoubted courage, bold fighting spirit, and unwavering devotion, to the duty in the face of almost certain death, Lance Corporal Carpenter reflected great credit upon himself and upheld the highest traditions of the Marine Corps and the United States Naval Service. Well, Lance Corporal Carpenter, I salute you, sir. Uh, you are someone I would love to have a beer with. You are the youngest living uh, recipient of the Medal of Honor. And you know what, guys? Um, I love these stories because they're so inspiring. They they really are, um, man, you, you just have to think about what they actually did. I mean, I have a lot of close friends, a, a lot of people that I love to death, and I don't know that I could do that. I, I don't know that I could basically jump on a grenade or in front of a grenade to uh, to save the people I love. I'd like to think that I, that I would or that I could, but there's no way of knowing. I mean, it, it's that is truly inspiring stuff. Uh, really well-deserved and, and one of many examples uh, of the bravery, the courage, the the outstanding people we have in the United States of America. There's so much negativity these days, but that's one thing I want to do with this uh, Friday segment. Suds with Studs, would love to have a beer with you, Mr. William Kyle Carpenter. You are a true hero, and uh, I can't wait to to look for, for future um people that I can uh, talk about on Fridays. Uh, we, we will, we are going to have a lot of Mill of Honor winners. There's no doubt about that, but I do want to look into some law enforcement or some just uh, citizens, anybody really, but people that are heroes that are people that stand out that make a difference. And uh, Mr. Carpenter, uh, you are a hero and someone that uh, just, I, I hope inspires so many different people. Uh, outstanding stuff. Major Bill Lee, thank you for suggesting, uh, you know, Mr. Carpenter to us. Uh, I, I really think, um, you know, jumping on a grenade basically for to save others is, is amazing. And then the fact that he lived, I mean, th that's just incredible. Um, I, I can't say it enough. Just just amazing stuff. If you guys want to uh, look up more on that guy, uh, William Kyle Carpenter, check him out. Um, born in 1989, the youngest living recipient of the Medal of Honor. Yeah, de definitely great stuff. Suds with studs. He's definitely one of them. And uh, yes, our second <laughs> uh, uh, person we will mention on that segment. We'll look forward to po uh, talking about someone else next Friday as well. Uh, well, before we get to the interview with Mr. Bill Lee, I want to tell you guys a story about Bill Lee. It's actually about Bill Lee's wedding. So he got married to Charlene Pollock 
and uh, I forget the year. He he can probably he'll he'll tell us or or maybe I don't know if it matters or not. But uh, I do know it was I, I was a huge sports. I still am a huge sports fan, but I was a very big Los Angeles Dodger fan. I've kind of faded off a little bit. Uh, once you get into umpiring, you kind of realize uh you know there's no reason to like a team because all the players kind of act the same. Anyway, uh, let, <laughs> let's get into the story here. So Bill and Charlene, it was the day of their wedding. Well, as a huge Dodger fan, I had never seen the Dodgers in the playoffs. And the Dodgers were playing the St. Louis Cardinals at Dodger Stadium, uh, game three in the in the first round, which is a best of best of five. And you know, they're probably gonna get swept or whatever. But me and my friend Bill Ritter, we had tickets to game three, first Dodger playoff game, home game in forever. So uh, we're like, we got to go, we got to go. We got the tickets. And of course, it was the day that of Bill and Charlene's wedding. Well, kind of, uh, how do I explain this? We, at Real Hondo Prep, Carrier Youth League, uh, RHLA is kind of the college leadership program that's training you to become a leader, to to coach kids and everything. Uh, you, everybody is kind of responsible to to help out with, with events, whether it be uh, setting up a, a church or uh, decorations, putting tables together, setting out. I don't know how many chairs I've set out over the years, but anyway, everyone just gets involved. That's a, a big reason. A lot of people who are from Rio and Cary Youth League have uh, gotten married down at the at the campus because a lot of times it's people who who met who uh, who who met and everything. But at the same time, um, it, it's just it's a it's a <laughs> it's it's I don't know how to say it. A free labor, but but it is free labor. So uh, it's just a way of people helping out uh, those and celebrating those who who get married and everything. So as young RHLA men, we had to <laughs> we had to uh, assist one way or another. And I remember being very adamant and saying, "Okay, listen, what if Bill and I do all these things uh, hours before?" in setting up and making sure we contribute uh, as as we everybody was we weren't trying to get out of any work but to set up everything hours in advance go to the game and then come back after the wedding and do the whole cleanup thing because yes again that was kind of what the college age kids were were in charge of so uh, I remember doing that we got permission we, w- we went early we set up stuff all day in the middle of the day and uh, ended up leaving went to Dodger Stadium watched the game The Dodgers beat the Cardinals to extend their season at least for one day. Jose Lima shut out the Cardinals, uh, went nine innings, and just a crazy atmosphere, great experience. Me and Bill rushed back, Bill Ritter that is, rushed back to um, Care Youth League to assist with the setup, or excuse me, the uh, to now do our part in the cleanup. And as we arrived, there was Bill and Charlene. They were uh, pulling out of uh, campus, basically, I believe it was the back of a truck, uh, as kind of the recessional, the farewell and everything. So me and Bill Ritter were the last people that saw them as they drove off. So Bill and Charlene, long story short, I missed your wedding because I decided to go to a Dodgers playoff game. Uh, I apologize so much. Uh, you know, looking back, I should have been at the wedding, but I was a young kid in my 20s who just wanted to see the Dodgers play. And, and uh, yeah, mad respect for, for Bill and Charlene, but I made a decision that I was going to go to the Dodger game and then race back to clean up. So not only was it a long day, but it's a day I'll never forget, and I'm sure Bill and Charlene will never forget it either. Uh, so I thought about that when we are going to have Bill on the program here, and I thought I would mention that. Didn't get a chance to cover it with Bill in the interview, but I wanted to talk about it there. Uh, yeah, so just a funny little little story. That's kind of how Bill Ritter and I were. We were like, we wanted to help and do our responsibilities at care when needed. But uh, you know what? We, we had some things we wanted to go do as well. So uh, you know what? Please forgive me, Bill and Charlene. 
for, for going to that Dodger game that night, but uh, couldn't be happier for uh, you too. And then seeing your, your, your daughters uh, grow, grow so fast these days, but we'll get, we'll get to all that in the interview. Uh, Bill talks a long time. I've talked a long time already, but we'll get right into the interview with Bill. Let's take a quick break and then we'll get right into it. So strap in and get ready. It's a long one. Okay, joining us today is a very special guest. It is quite a way to uh, take us home safe for the weekend. Uh, definitely wanted to have him in on a Friday, and I'm really excited about this interview. We're going to be joined by Bill Lee. He's actually known as Major Lee, but we'll get into all of that. Uh, he is a Marine. He has served uh, in the Marines since 2001. He is currently a reserve he is the resident manager at Mount Care in Wrightwood, California, which is the campground associated with Care Youth League and Rio Hondo Prep. We're going to touch on so many things today, but I first want to welcome him to the program. Major Lee, welcome to the program. Hey, Matt. It's great being here. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this and been listening to the podcasts uh, in the past, and it's been so much fun uh, just listening to peers and friends and, and colleagues and everything else. So thank you. Oh, uh, the pleasure's all mine. You know what, Bill, it's been a, it's been a great opportunity to catch up with so many people, whether it be people you talk to every day, people you've just crossed path with, with at, at some point in your life. Uh, but, but, you know, uh, we, we had on a few, we had on Maynard Bajorquez a, a long time ago, who's a West Point graduate and now an opportunity to talk with someone uh, like yourself, who not only is a real Hondo prep graduate, but uh, someone who served in the, in the Marine Corps. Uh, we have a lot of things to touch on. I mean, you, you coached my brother's football team for, for a while. Um, you grew up in Cary Youth League. Your brother, John Lee, was on the program not too long ago, uh, ch chiming in from Oregon. So is that how you kind of got uh, got involved in listening to the program? You kind of tuned into John first? It was. So I listened to his first, and we chatted a little bit before earlier today, and I was saying, yeah, I'll probably listen to my brother talk for about five, ten minutes, and then I'll do something else. But I ended up listening to the whole thing, and uh, I just thought it was very interesting getting his perspective on some things that maybe – in our lives growing up, I didn't really realize, I guess, or even here. So it was, it was good. <laughs> well, well, you have another brother in, in Ken. So I know at one, I, I didn't really listen to it much, but there used to be a radio show called uh, John and Ken. And you, you got to live the real life with brothers, John and Ken. Uh, Ken's going to be, <laughs> Ken's going to be on the program here real shortly. We had some audio issues the first time, but I mean, Ken's running his own podcast. He's really exciting. And, and I could tell you after talking with you and John and Ken a little bit, it's funny. You're all three different, but man, you, you three are all very similar as well. Yeah, definitely. And that definitely the credit. Well, I, I think that was a credit that goes to our parents. <laughs> <laughs> well, 100%. I touch on that with John quite a bit. Uh, you, you have two amazing parents, Bill. Uh, you know, your dad uh, is, is uh, one of the best teachers I ever had. He used to coach that Atlantic team that I despised growing up. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, your mom recently passed away, and I touched on that with with John. But you know, just my condolences. She was a wonderful woman, and and I'm sure. I mean, you know this now. You've received so much support from so many different people that really uh, she touched their lives very much. Yeah, she was an amazing woman, a uh, woman of a big heart, 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, she will be missed, but we know she's, uh, in a better place now and, uh, her legacy will definitely, uh, go on. She's left not only, uh, three sons, but also, uh, grandchildren too. So it, I definitely see a lot of her in my daughters. Uh, so it's, it's, it's great to see, even though she herself is gone, but, uh, everything she was in, in is still going through, uh, our children now. So it's been great. Oh, 100%. I mean, the legacy continues, whether it's you guys or your guys' children. I, I mean, it, it just speaks volumes to uh, the lady that she was. And, and, and your father, he's, he's one of the kindest men I've ever known. I, I love the story John told about, you know, Mr. Drain apologizing. Uh, and, and your dad was just like, no, nope, he deserved it. <laughs> yeah. That was great. That, 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 that's probably happened multiple times with John. Let's just be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, you, you, you know, Bill, uh, let's talk about, about the Marines. You, you joined up in 2001, and we'll kind of touch on all of it, but, but what, was the, what was the motivating factor for you in 2001 to say, you know what, I want to go into the Marine Corps? I mean, was it, a, was it a singular moment, or was it just kind of this thing you've been thinking out a long time? That's an interesting question. Um, so I actually had a lot of interest in the Marine Corps during high school. Matter of fact, uh, and maybe it was just more for the cool poster of the guy that looked really hard and tough on my wall. But I, I actually talked with recruiters just to get free stickers and posters and whatnot. But uh, there was definitely an interest uh, at a younger age. And then, of course, once I got involved with coaching and sports and all that, it kind of just faded away. But then in the summer of 2000, uh, one of my best friends, Mark Carson, who was also a coach there at Rio Hondo Prep and Carey League, gave me a book called Making the Core. It was a very simple book, had nothing to do with combat, nothing to do. It just followed a, a guy through boot camp. That was it. It was a very simple book. But at that time in my life, I just wasn't uh, sure exactly the direction I was going. I had already graduated college. I was teaching. I was kind of, I guess, moving forward in a career path of teaching and coaching. And this book just sparked an interest. And I kind of thought to myself, I was 26 at the time. And I said, if I don't do this now, I'll never do it. And I literally, I don't know if it was the next day, but pretty soon walked into the recruiter office and basically said, I, I'm joining the Marine Corps. Like, where do I sign? And so it was kind of crazy. Wow. And, and you know, uh, Bill, at the time, you know, 2001, I'm sure everyone remembers, you know, I mean, that was right around 9-11 or was 9-11. Uh, so I don't know how close it was to you signing up. And I mean, people had to be concerned for you as far as uh, any, not just you, but anybody going into the military at that time, because things were really starting to heat up. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, different combat in the years to follow that the United States went into. So, I mean, was, was everyone pretty supportive or were there some people that were kind of concerned maybe with, with you taking that step? Well, that's interesting because yeah, 2001, obviously with 9-11, which was September, uh, I actually signed up in June. So 9-11 had not happened yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, but kind of all good back to that part. But yeah, when I first joined up, uh, my close friends were very supportive, like Mark Carson, who I mentioned about giving me that book. He was all fired up. He's like, oh, man, because he knew me. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my close friends were very supportive. There were definitely some some doubters and people that were like, whoa, what are you doing? You know, you're going to ruin your life, whatever. Just, But, you know, I knew for me it was something that uh, – I don't know why I just felt so strongly about it when I did. And so I joined and then, of course, just several months later, 9-11 happens. Matter of fact, I was still going through training. I hadn't even made the, the fleet yet. 
and uh, things definitely changed. So we were still kind of going through training, old school, kind of like the whole Cold War Russian type scenarios in our training. And then 9-11 happened and everything switched and things got real serious very fast. And it definitely changed uh, the mindset of everybody that was in the Marine Corps and also, you know, Army, Navy and Air Force and everybody else. So it, it definitely was an interesting time to be uh, on active duty during that. So it was interesting to see just how everybody reacted and the quick changes, you know, money started flowing into the training that we were doing and uh, everybody was kind of fired up. I mean, nobody really joins the Marine Corps for the, the college benefits or whatever the advertisements are that the army Navy and the air force give you sorry guys. I just have to throw a little bit of a, a dig there. But uh, yeah, we're not joining for, you know, the benefits or the GI Bill. You know, most Marines join because they want to go to combat. And so when this happened, not that we were excited that 9-11 happened, but most guys were pumped up knowing like, oh, man, we're going to go do some business. Yeah, I mean, you, you said it was the month of June. I mean, three months later, 9-11 hits. And I mean, was that was that a moment that told you that you made the right decision? I mean, I'm sure I, I know you. There wasn't any hesitancy going into any of this. But when, when that moment happened, was it then this moment of, you know what, this happened, uh, me joining was for a reason, especially when I did. And now all of a sudden 9-11 is here and, and it's time to go. Yeah, I don't know if there was anything specific that I thought like, oh, man, yeah, that that kind of solidifies my decision. But I, I would definitely say that I was uh, fired up, uh, got more serious, especially as an officer, knowing that, you know, you could potentially be leading uh, Marines in combat. And, you know, you have a great responsibility for their lives and just for the actions that will be taking place. And so, yeah, things definitely got serious and uh, there was definitely some motivation and excitement. And of course, butterflies and some nervousness, but more more excitement than anything else. It was a it was a time. It was a time in my life where, um, and you know, growing up playing sports, this is the kind of the analogy I use to some guys. It's kind of like uh, you're standing on that football field before the game starts, and the whistle blows for that opening kickoff, and multiply that by a hundred. <laughs> wow, wow, yeah, that's uh. <laughs> That's a uh, pretty intense right there. I, I, I know the, the football feeling. I can't even imagine uh, the times a hundred feeling. Uh, wow, Bill. And, and, you know, you, you had two combat combat deployments to Iraq. You, uh, you were, you got out in 2005. Uh, but, but what can you tell me was, was the first deployment uh, in between 01 and 05 where they, they weren't both done at that uh, in between those years Were they were, was one after afterwards. No, actually, both were after. So I came in, um, you know, again, 2001. Uh, we didn't get into Iraq until 2003. Now, we did have some guys in Afghanistan, but it definitely wasn't what everybody thinks of it now. Uh, so Iraq was really first before Afghanistan. Um, so 2003, I was actually in Okinawa, Japan with 3rd Marine Division. Well, 3rd Marine Division didn't get involved in Iraq for the first couple of years. And so everybody that was over there with uh, third Marines were kind of frustrated, you know, wanting to get over. And I was one of those guys as well. And I remember talking to my monitor. They're the ones who kind of place you after you've been in a certain position for so long. Then they move you about every two to three years, you move to a different position or, you know, job. And so I was talking to the monitors, like, I want to get out of Okinawa, man. I want to, I want to get over to Iraq. I want to, you know, join this fight before it's over. And that's how a lot of those guys felt over there. 
and I actually got moved out to 29 Palms with a unit that was supposed to deploy, and then they changed my orders, and I ended up working at the base in 29 Palms. So I was very disgruntled, uh, and maybe even a little bit bitter. I'm not gonna lie. And so I was kind of like, I was like, this is terrible. It's like I came out here to get to Iraq, and now I'm stuck in the desert. You know, watching all my buddies, guys that I went to training with, come through, do their workups, and then deploy while I get to send them off and, and train them or whatever. And, uh, yeah, so that was my first part of my career. And then I ended up getting out, uh, from 29 palms. Cause I was at the end of my four years. And, uh, so I got out with no plans to come back. I was like, okay, I did my four years. Unfortunately, I didn't get to go to combat, but that's fine. And I actually, started my family at that time because I was 30 years old. And so I got out and got married and was planning to go back to regular life after that. Well, uh, is 2005, uh, you know, my, my brother, Sam Hersema wa was a senior class of 06, but the football season was 05. And so one of the things you did when, when you uh, got out of the Marines after those four years is you were an assistant coach for, for Real Hondo Prep. You were working then. I'm sure Mark Carson had something to do with that, as you mentioned him earlier, coming on board. Uh, you know, you, you did some work with the O-line and, and things like that. And all those guys on that team really appreciate you to this day. Uh, maybe not at the time, because I think <laughs> the biggest thing you did for those guys is you absolutely pushed them. You were a uh, the conditioning guy. I mean, it says a lot when you have, a, a, you know, a, a current Marine, basically. <laughs> who is who is running your conditioning program yeah so i got out uh i had some what's called terminal leave so i got out late 2004 and you know came back home like i said um married my wife at that time started our family pretty early because like i said i was already 30 years old mm -hmm. and yeah mark mark carson asked me he said hey um we need a strength and conditioning coach and just kind of like a grab a face mask kind of a guy on the sideline <laughs> <laughs> and so uh you know and there was no, it wasn't a paid thing it was a volunteer thing and i'm like oh man i'm there i'm there so uh I, I got the opportunity to, like you said, work these guys. Uh, we worked, you know, prior to the season, the two-a-days and all that. And, yeah, I remember the first couple of weeks, I don't think any of those guys liked me at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I, I can't. I can't imagine they did. Uh, and, and real quick, Bill, you know, you touched on getting married. I mean, you, you got married kind of right when you got out. I mean, Charlene, uh, that had to be uh, a tough for her knowing that you weren't on deployment yet, but you were still away. I mean, you guys, I'm sure, was, were still in, you know, uh, I don't know what to say exactly. But, you know, you got married right after you got out. So what was it like for her even um, – before you guys got married, as far as you being away. Yeah. So that's interesting. So I, like, again, so we were kind of going out uh, again. So we had been going out prior to my Marine Corps career uh, um, and then had cut it off or whatever you want to call it. And so when I was coming back home now, because I was so close in 29 Palms, uh, you know, we got back together and decided to get married. So I actually got married while I was still on active duty um, and I was commuting for the first two months of our marriage. So I was still going back and forth to our home in Azusa and then at the base in 29 Palms. But when I got out, 
yeah, when I came off of active duty, as far as her mind and mine as well, that was it. I was done. And we, like I said, we started a family and uh, I was coaching again, not only with the high school, but I also started coaching uh, Care Youth League again. And I think it was the double A AA or triple A Wildcats that I was coaching. And I'll kind of fast forward here. Two and a half years after I had gotten out, uh, I got what's called presidential recall orders. So when you go in active duty, it's a, actually an eight-year commitment. Mm-hmm. You actually only serve four, and then they put you in uh, basically a hold, what's called the ready reserves. And so if, you know, the bubble goes up or whatever you want to call it, and there's a major conflict, uh, they can pull guys who have already been trained instead of drafting or getting more guys to volunteer or whatever. And so that's what happened to me. I was in uh, I was working for a private security company. We could probably talk about that later. And I had a guy who was working with mobilization command, which is the command that mobilized these guys um, to come back on active duty. And he was telling me, Hey, they're pulling from five different categories our military occupational specialty, which we call MOS. And as an officer in the Marine Corps, there's 22 of those uh, at the time there were, and they were pulling from five, which was one of mine, which is a combat engineer. And not only that, he said they're pulling guys in their second and third year of the IRR, which is that individual ready reserve, and they're pulling captains. I was all three of those categories. <laughs> and so I told the wife, I said, hey, there's a real possibility that they might call me back. Um, and it's not to go like sit in an office so the guy in the office can go deploy. It's going to be like call you back to, to go to combat. And no lie, two weeks later, I came home. And there was a, um, an official package. I don't know if it was FedEx or whatever. Just the right size for official letter. And sure enough, I opened it up and it was orders to, to go back on to active duty. Wow. And, and, what, and what year did you say that was? Kind of 07? That was in, yeah, I got the orders in 2006. And at that time, um, we had our first daughter born and, my, and she was pregnant with our second. So it was a, a tough pill to swallow for her, for sure having a newborn and being pregnant with the second. Wow. I mean, Bill, there's one thing I can say about, about guys in the military, especially guys on deployment. Uh, you know, that, that seems to be like one of many uh, examples of guys that, you know, they're gone for a year at a time or longer, however long it is. And, you know, they have, they have wives uh, back home or if, if it's, you know, the, the ladies who are deployed, they got husbands back. I mean, there's families back home because the timing doesn't always work out. I, I'm sure that was tough on her and you also, uh, but you had to know that it was the right thing for you to do at the time, I'm sure. And, you know, everything worked out. Yeah, it did. And it was definitely hard. So she actually uh, wrote down only because I had to write it down. Otherwise, I wouldn't be remembering correctly. Um so at that time, we had an, a, a condo in Azusa. So from the time we got married, and then that time I got those recall orders, we have moved, got to count them up, 10, 10 different times oh. we've moved. And so that was in 2000, yeah, 2007. So this is 2020. So what is that? In 13 years, we've moved 10 times. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Some of those, you know, were household household moves. Sometimes it was just, you know, we're in a hotel for a couple months until we can find some housing somewhere or whatever. 
but I think uh, we've lived in like five different homes and then, you know, stuck in apartments or even a, an inn or a hotel. We were in a Hampton Inn for two months one time. Oh, wow. So, so that said, that said, is the Lee family, are you guys known as rather uh, light packers then because of all that travel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, and that's interesting because, you know, growing up, going on summer trips and things, uh, you learn how to pack well because you don't have much <laughs> space. And so it was something that I had uh, gotten from my RHP and care uh, past in history. So it was actually not a very hard transition that way, I'll be honest. <laughs> oh man. Well, I know you guys have always made the best of, of what uh, you, your situation is. I've seen videos of you, you know, you guys with your daughters, like you, you're, you're definitely a, a, a what, the, what do they call it? A dad, a girl dad uh, <laughs> doing the whole, I mean, I've seen you construct slides and forts and all kinds of fun things uh, where, wherever you guys are at. I love it. Yeah, I absolutely love it. And for a while, it's funny. So we'll go off on a tangent here, maybe down a rabbit hole, but Talking about my daughter. So I have two daughters. They're currently uh, 15. My youngest just turned 13. And so I got two teenagers now in the house. So, yeah, that's it's interesting. But they're they're amazing girls. But it's, um, you know, they were into pink and purple and the whole thing when they were little. And, you know, Disney princesses and, you know, dad would dance with them and do all that stuff. I had one rule, though. I don't do makeup and I don't do hair. So... <laughs> You know, you can dress up, you can do all that. I'll dance with you, we'll twirl and we'll do that. But I don't do makeup. You can't put it on me and you don't, you don't do my hair. So other than that, I'm, I'm all in. <laughs> Bill, you're, you're a, uh, you're a rather tall guy. You're very well, well built. Uh, you know, I, I pray for the, for the young men that eventually uh, come to your <laughs> door to, to take your daughters out someday. It's got to be very intimidating, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely a part of the plan there. So I've already talked to my girls about that. I said, you you know, so if a boy asks you out, what's your first response? And they already know. It's like, you need to talk to my dad first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the, the, the my Marine father. Yeah, I have a talk with him. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. I'll be sharpening something or, yeah, I'll be sharpening something or polishing something while we're having that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yes, absolutely. I mean, we got We need more of that stuff in the world these days. With oh, what a what a great dad you are, Bill. I love it. That's great stuff. Uh, and I know you know your brothers. Uh, well, let's see. John had a had a daughter, I believe. But you know, you had he a did. lot of uh, yeah, you had a lot of boys in the Lee family. You were kind of amongst the. I mean, I, re, I even remember you making an announcement. Oh, was it like a pie auction or something at Red Care? And you announced that uh, you and your wife were having a daughter. It was going to be like the first daughter in the Lee family. or so, if my, I don't know if my memory is uh, yeah. correct or not. No, you're absolutely right. So my dad had three brothers. Um, of course, I had a mom, but she had a brother. And out of my dad's kids, uh, mostly boys there. And then, of course, you know, they had us three boys. And my younger brother had two boys. And then my older brother had two boys. And then when we had our first child, it was a girl. So it was the first Lee born as a Lee, not married into the Lee family in like three <laughs> generations or something. <laughs> That's and crazy, man. Yeah. So Audrey, our firstborn, she was definitely spoiled there for a little bit. And then uh, we had Reese and then John had a third child and it was a girl. So there's three girls now born in the Lee family in this generation. So it's great. 
<laughs> it's fantastic, man. And, and you know, I ask, I asked Mark Carson this cause he's got four daughters. I mean, yes. you got, <laughs> I was like, Mark, you got four, four daughters, dude. That's, that's, that's a whole infield. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, what is it, what is it like being, you, you mentioned on it a little bit, but what's it like being the dad uh, of, of girls, of daughters? Is it everything you, you hope for and more? I mean, uh, you know, you're a very outdoorsy guy. We already talked to you being in the military. You love sports. I mean, uh, do, do they have some of those traits as well? Or, I mean, y- y- your wife uh, also in the mix, what's it all like being in uh, just one big uh, Lee family and you, you being the only, uh, the only male in the mix. <laughs> yeah. And I literally am cause we have a dog and she's also a female. So I literally am the only male, but uh, <laughs> I-, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's, it's an amazing thing. Um, you know, of course, I think growing up, most guys, when they think about being a parent, they're like, oh, I'm going to have my boy, my son. But uh, I'll be honest, I-, I love my girls to death. I wouldn't have it any other way. I don't wish that I would have a boy or anything like that. Um, uh, so I kind of mentioned, you know, they grew up in the whole just a typical girl, you know, pink, purple, Disney princesses, you know, <laughs> castles and whatnot. But then I did a hunting trip in Wyoming and came home and we as a family had visited like Williamsburg or someplace where they had like an American Indian uh, or Native American uh, display and they had like furs and bones that they used for tools and so when I went on the hunting trip my oldest daughter was like dad you need to bring me back some hooves some bones and and some fur I'm like what (laughs) so yeah because I want to make glue out of the hooves and I'm going to make tools out of the bones and I want to make a you know something out of the fur I'm like whoa and uh, so when I came back, I did. I brought, I brought back a bunch of stuff. I had a, uh, a pronghorn antelope from, it was in Wyoming or uh, where we were. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It was in, uh, yeah, Wyoming. It was the Grand Teton area. And uh, came back with all those requests. But I also had uh, a head, <laughs> sounds kind of gruesome, a head of a pronghorned uh, deer. And uh, <laughs> anyway, so we... They, they actually helped me. We actually tanned our own hide uh, from the furs. And so they, you know, all the gore of it and everything, and they did it and they tanned it with me. And we actually have done, I think we've done one, two, three, I think three or four furs that we've actually tanned ourselves as a family with my daughters. And then, and the, and it just, the switch turned. They, they're, you know, they went from pink and purple to camouflage and, and blue jeans. It was great. <laughs> Oh my goodness, that's that's hilarious! Wow. Yes. Wow. What does your wife think of all that? Is she kind of roll her eyes, or is she all supportive? How's that? No, work? she was she was completely supportive. And my thing was like, hey, let me just have it while I got it, because I know once they turn fifteen, sixteen, it's going to go back to being girly and hair and makeup. <laughs> so let me enjoy this. <laughs> and and we did. I mean, we we did uh, some deer hunts together with my kids. We'd go out really early. My older one really got. Uh, excited about it we did several hunts we never got anything but we definitely saw animals and had some opportunities but it was just so much fun going out early you know on these long hikes into the woods and I teach them everything I I, that I knew and because before we started hunting I said well you can't hunt until you can survive so we went out and I remember the first time I took them out we parked the car and we walked into the woods and we're just hiking for a good 30 minutes and I said okay get back to the truck and they kind of looked at me with big eyes. I said, figure it out. We got to get back to the truck. And, you know, I, 
I gave them clues and hints. Okay, where was the sun on your face and different things like that. And they, you know, they figured it out with a little bit of guidance. But that was kind of the wake up call. So yeah, you can go hunt, but you got to be able to get out too. <laughs> Man, this is this is just priceless. Uh, you know, experience and training for, for your uh, young daughters here. I mean, man, I wish there were more, I'm sure there's plenty of them, but more dads out there, uh, you know, working with their daughters like you do, Bill, that's great stuff. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And then obviously shooting. So um, I got an air rifle for them, you know, to start off and then work their way up. But yeah, they're crack shots, man. They're, they're amazing. And living in Virginia at the time, uh, a little bit different than California as far as gun laws. And so just I remember a, just a little different. No, I mean, yeah. 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 <laughs> so my older daughter, we were practicing in the backyard and I had her up on the roof of the shed and I had uh, a swinging pendulum with uh, kind of like a skeet, like an orange little skeet thing, but a small about the size, I'd say of a like a can, like a regular eight ounce can, like a top. And I would swing it and I was teaching her how to either lead it or to, you know, hold your position and wait for it to come into your sights. Anyway, second shot, she blew the thing away and, and I'm like, wow. And so they're, they're really, they're really good shots. <laughs> well, uh, practice makes permanent as, you know, coach train always said. So yes. <laughs> great Aim stuff. Small, man. Oh, I love that quote. Yes. Aim small, miss small. Well, you talk, man, Wyoming, Virginia, what other places in the United States have you guys lived for a short time? Even if it was, like you said, uh, just in a hotel for a couple months. Well, as a family, we lived, uh, you know, here in California, a couple of different places. So like I said, we first uh, got married and lived in Azusa and then I got stationed down in, uh, Camp Pendleton. And so we lived in Dana point, actually, we had a, a condo there. And then from there, we were in uh, Massachusetts in a place called Belchertown, of all places, which I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> um, and then from there, we were in North Carolina for several months before I deployed. Uh, and then we lived in Virginia for five years before I came off of active duty a second time. Wow. And so that was around, you said 2017 uh, when, yeah. you, when you came off of active duty? Right. Yep. Came off active duty in 2017 to take the position that I am currently sitting right now. Uh, as far as the uh, the reserves go? No, my uh, civilian job is what I'll call it. So working at Mount Kier. <laughs> That's yeah. right. I'm sorry. Okay. Yep. So so what can you tell? So you, you're still on reserve, right? And you said you have a couple more years left. So you're currently, uh, what what two things? What is it? Uh, how did you transition and, and kind of jump into the job at Mount Care? And then also, uh, what is it as far as being a reserve for a couple more years? What is kind of the, your responsibilities? Is it is it a monthly thing? Is it every couple months? Uh, if you can kind of tie both of those in for us, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. So, so when I was in Massachusetts, it's um, kind of moving forward in my career as a Marine. Uh, I got promoted to major about a year before my peers. And so kind of motivated and hard charging, doing all those things. And in my mind at the time, you know, I'm, I'm going all out. I'm going to get 20 years, work my way up and maybe become a uh, lieutenant colonel and a, comp or a, excuse me, a battalion commander and all those things. Well, God had different plans for me. And so some things had changed and I started questioning if this is really what I was supposed to be doing. So my wife and I actually were looking at properties out in Virginia or Tennessee 
And we were talking about doing uh, like a, uh, I call it a, a young man's or a boy's camp type thing where my passion, and I worked with high school students at our church when we were in Virginia, and my passion is really making young boys into men, you know, real men, uh, <laughs> men of God. And, you know, just the, the wussification of our nation is just something that drives me nuts. And, you know, uh, even just seeing a guy wearing pink drives me nuts. Sorry, but not that that's an <laughs> Not that that's an indicator. <laughs> hey, it, yeah, no, I, I hear you, man. It, it, it always starts with some small things and like, oh, that's not a big deal. Oh, that's not a big deal. But they all add up and it's like, wait a minute. Yeah, big things are, are built by a bunch of little things, you know, so I hear you there. Yeah, I, I agree with you. So anyway, so that was kind of where the, the genesis of me moving here, because then when I uh, moved out to. Virginia, the job that I was in had me coming out to 29 Palms quite often. And so Mr. Parsons, who, you know, still works in Mount Care and has been the manager there for 35 plus years, was a mentor of mine in college when I used to work up there a little bit. And so I would go up from time to time and just talk to him about how he ran the nonprofit portion of the camp and was kind of taking advice, thinking that I'm going to take that back and, and do something completely different. Well, not knowing that he had been looking for someone to take his place and things just kind of evolved over time. And God just kind of led me that direction. And so that was probably about six years ago when that all first started. And then, like I said, things just kind of uh, came together with the need there and with my desire to, to work in a similar kind of setting. Oh yeah. And, and yeah, I, I remember you being up there quite a bit, you know, just helping out and, uh, doing whatever needed to be done up there. Mount Care is a special place. Anyone who's gone through Care Rio understands uh, what it, what it means to go up there. Uh, it seemed it seemed like there was times when you were up there a lot as a not you but just us in general as a, a you know whether you're a kid or a young adult. And, and then I haven't been there in so long, Bill. And and I'm kind of thinking about it. I'm like, man, I, I got to get up there just to just to kind of walk the land a little bit and, and reminisce over some memories. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know when your birthday is, but this year's birthday card that CARE always sends out all to our alumni throughout the years uh, is a Mount CARE featured birthday card. So I don't know if you've gotten that yet or, but uh, so anyone that's listening that has received their birthday card this year, it'll, it'll have a little bit of a plug there for Mount CARE. And we'd love to hear stories of your experiences at Mount CARE. Uh, there's a link on there, I think, where you can go and tell stories. So I'm looking forward to reading those. There's already been a few and it's been very interesting hearing the different perspectives of how Mount CARE has affected uh, people's lives. Uh, well, Bill, as far as running Mount CARE, you're up there in Wrightwood, California with the family and all. And you said you're still in the reserves uh, as far as the Marines go. You got a couple more years to go. What can you tell me about that situation? How often uh, you, know, you have to report and, and just stuff like that as far as your, your Marine Corps service goes? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. So I literally do the minimum amount possible to get satisfied years towards my retirement just because I'm so vested in Mount Care, and I, I really believe this is where I'm supposed to be right now. <laughs> and so a typical reserve will be a part of a reserve unit. Well, they'll come in every month for a weekend, and then they'll come in for two weeks during the summer. Well, that doesn't quite work at a camp where most of your guests are there on weekends and all summer. Mm -hmm. So 
I was very fortunate to find uh, there's another path in the reserves called the IMA, which is Individual Mobilized Augmentee. So I am an individual mobilized guy, and I work for an active duty unit in 29 Palms as an individual. And literally, uh, because I know the guys working there from my previous job, and they know my credentials, and they know you know the knowledge that I have and my background uh, from what I was doing when I was in Quantico, they basically say, hey, just let us know when you're available, and we'll, we'll figure out stuff for you to do. So I literally can make my own schedule, which is almost unheard of uh, in the military. <laughs> And not only that, but it's a part of training and education command. So it's not a unit that would be deployable. So my wife's very happy about that. Oh, absolutely. And you know what? I think, like you said, God works in mysterious ways when, when you kind of uh, invest in him, invest in Mount Carey like you did. And then things were able to work out as far as your reserve service goes. Uh, yeah, that's an incredible story. But one last thing kind of regarding the Marines uh, and your service you know, you just touched on it with your, your wife's really happy that uh, you didn't have to deploy. I mean, what can you tell me about uh, your, your two combat deployments, uh, how long you were gone each time, and just, you know, what that was like uh, being away from family. Uh, you know, you finally got to do what you really wanted to do and serve the country that way. Uh, but it still had to be a tough time to be away from everybody. Yeah, it was. It's it's interesting. The two deployments that I did were on the opposite end of the spectrum. So my first deployment was in Haditha province, which was probably one of the worst areas during that time in Iraq. And I was on a small team called a MIT team, military. Um, oh, boy, what does MIT team stand for? It was basically a training and advising group for an Iraqi battalion. So we had a total of 15 guys and uh, we got a lot of special training before we left. Similar to if you ever watched any like Vietnam era, like movies and stuff with the Green Beret, how they would embed. So you learn the language, you learn the culture, and then you go in and you train and advise a foreign force to fight. And that's basically what we did. So we got language training, culture training, all that kind of stuff. And then we'd go in and we were attached to an Iraqi battalion. And our job was to basically get them to work independent so that we could get out of there. And... Um, we ended up splitting after about a month. I had, I had nine other guys and me, and we split out from our main team who was working with the commanders of the Iraqi battalion. And I actually went out and did more operational uh, stuff with these other guys. And so we went out with the Iraqi companies and did operations um, really daily. We would, I'd say for a, several months there, we were doing at least three to four patrols a day and two or three at night. And then, you know, we did raids, we did ambushes, we did all kinds of things with, with them advising and training them. And of course, right there alongside of them. So it was a pretty intense time. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I loved every minute of it. And uh, everybody on our unit came home safe. We didn't have any casualties at all. And I can attribute a lot of that to just the Lord protecting us because we had a lot of close calls, but uh, it was, it was a very, Interesting time in respect to my family because, and I've told my wife this, and so there's no, no surprises here on this uh, recording, but, uh, <laughs> you know, in the moment when you're there, that was all I thought of. You know, I'd come back and, and because we were out away, like we literally would go in abandoned buildings, sandbag the doors and windows, and that's where we lived. And then we'd come back three, four months, or excuse me, three, four weeks later to headquarters to get a hot shower and, and reboot and then go back and do it all over again. 
So really, you know, when we come back to reboot is when I'd be able to sit down behind a computer and send an email or whatever. And I'll be honest, when I was out, you know, doing the combat stuff, you know, my family wasn't really on my mind. Uh, Nothing was on my mind other than the mission at the moment. And I think, I think that was a good thing because I think if, if you, you're dwelling on, oh man, my wife, I'm, I'm sad. I miss her. Then you kind of lose focus of the mission. Um, I don't know. I, like I played football and you play football. So here I'll give another sports analogy to try to bring it home for those of us who play sports. When I play sports, I never heard the crowd. I never heard the cheerleaders. I never even knew they were there, you know, because I was so invested in what was happening on the field that I could care less if somebody was cheering for, I didn't even know it didn't matter. Now I'm not, the roar of the crowd's different, mm-hmm. but uh, you know what I mean? So I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but you well, kinda, no, I, you kinda... go ahead. Oh no, I, I think, I think it, I totally get it. I mean, it's, it's hard enough to focus on one thing. Uh, try focusing on two or three or four. I, I just, uh, I never been in that situation, Bill, but, but I can understand what you're trying to say that, you know, you, you had to because uh, just I mean, what you guys were doing was was uh, dangerous and in an extreme situation. But that goes for really anybody, I think. And if, if you take the family to the office, uh, you know what some or 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 you take the office to the family. I, yeah. I think there's going to be some uh, some issues either way, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And so that was my first appointment. And um like I said, everybody came home safe. It was a, it was a great, very intense time. And, you know, you hear stories of guys kind of getting addicted to the adrenaline or whatever. And I'll have to admit that there was definitely some issues with that after coming home. Um, and, you know, we saw some things that, uh, you know, would disturb anybody. And so, you know, you have things that go through your mind and, you know, at night when you're just, your mind's kind of clear and whether it's dreams or whatever, but, uh, you know, again, God, I think, uh, Helped me through that as well, because to, to this day, and I was reading through some journals that I had written during that time, and there's things I don't even remember. I'm reading, I'm like, wow, that happened? Like, we saw that, we did that. I'm like, I don't remember that. And I think it's a blessing, because if I did, you know, you hear about PTSD and all these different things, and I've never experienced any of that. And I can only attribute that to just God's grace, because there's definitely some things that probably could bother bother me. So that was my first. So my second, again, complete different end of the spectrum on my second one. This was in 2009. I was in a place called uh, Altacatum, and I was with a support uh, wing squadron. So guys that support pilots, basically, airfield and all that, which was way out of my realm of uh, spectrum and knowledge. And so, like I said, the first deployment, I had about 10 guys in combat situation. The second deployment, I had 125 guys under my command. And we were doing basically security for airfields in Altacatum. We just called it TQ. And uh, not a shot fired, not a rocket. I mean, pretty much nothing as far as combat goes. Um, but there was other challenges. And uh, it was a really good time because I had so many guys. Uh, it was a different type of responsibility. And the one thing that I'm proud of during that deployment was the rest of the squadron was in a whole different base and their guys were getting in trouble all the time. You know, just young guys that had free time doing stupid stuff because now there's no combat operations and you got all these, you know, type A, you know, guys that, you know, eat nails with nothing to do. So they're getting in trouble where the guys I had, 
you know, we kept them employed in a lot of different ways and we didn't have any issues at all for the whole, whole deployment. So that was, it was a great deployment. It was just completely different type. Yeah. I, I you know, one thing I've heard is that guys, uh, how do you, how do you explain this bill? Uh, it doesn't have to be deployment. It could be, you know, when you're home, but like you do all this training, you train and train and train and work out and work out. And it sounds like that the second deployment, it's, it's just a lot of kind of waiting around. Uh, nothing, you said nothing happened. Was it kind of, is it like, uh, stressful thinking about, Hey, nothing has happened yet. Like maybe there's going to, maybe we got to be ready or was it just kind of like, Hey, you know what? We're ready if something does happen, but uh, we're not going to sit here and, and worry about it or, or wish for it. I mean, what's kind of the psyche in a situation like that? No, man, good question. Cause I think for both deployments, the same scenario is true in just an opposite realm. So I'll give you the first one in the first deployment. So here you are, you know, danger around every corner. You have no idea who's friend, who's foe, just because of the insurgency. You know, you're wearing your flak jacket, which has sappy plates in it, which is designed to take a direct shot from an AK-47, 762 round. I mean, you're you're living in this thing, literally. You know, I'm sleeping with a condition one pistol under my pillow. You know, we're almost living with the enemy, so to speak, because a lot of these guys probably were surgeons before coming back and joining the Iraqi army. So, like, we didn't trust anybody. And so I'll call this there's a color scheme of, like, being alert and aware. So you're kind of in the red, but you can't live there because then you just stress out and you, you know, go crazy. And so you kind of after the first month or so, not that your guard comes down, but you just kind of. I guess, realize, hey, if it's my time, it's my time. I, there's you know, nothing you can do about it. And so you get a little bit more relaxed. And I remember about a month and a half in, two months, you know, sitting down with the guy and say, hey, guys, you know, we're getting way too relaxed. You know, we, we need to bring up our intensity level a little bit and just be more aware and uh, just, you know, kind of bring that level back up. So we tried to live in that yellow, orange uh, awareness. You know, you can't live in the red. Obviously, when there's situations where you go there because there's a threat or something. And the same thing was true for the other deployment though, where nothing's happening. And so you get so relaxed that, you know, you're not aware of anything. And so you kind of have to live in the middle for both deployments. Hmm. And uh, so it's just interesting on both sides of the spectrum. So you try to, you try to just live in the middle the whole time. Um, so that one, you're not getting too relaxed uh, in a combat situation, but then you're not too relaxed in a situation that could turn into a combat situation. <laughs> oh man, it's 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 very interesting, and uh, you know what? Uh, I love studying warfare and the history of not e- not even just our country, but the history of uh, just different battles and warfare and everything. And uh, just it's interesting to hear from the people that have have uh, been involved in those types of things. I mean, uh, one, one question I'll ask you about your deployment and being over there and is what was it like as far as like civilians? I mean, you get this again, I think we're on the same page here of as far as, you know, you get this, this media portrayal of kind of how uh, the military is viewed and uh, you know, you guys were outsiders, you're in another country. I mean, what were kind of some of the, uh, the, the way you guys were portrayed or how, how would it's kind of the civilians uh, look, look at you guys? It, did it change over time or just kind of what was your interaction with the civilians when you were there? That's another great question. I think if you look at what's happening today uh, with the police force and the civilian population, it's all about relationships. So 
our job was to go in there and train the Iraqi army to take over and do what they're supposed to do. However, the places we moved and lived in were villages. And so you had, you know, sheikhs and people in the town and elders and different things. And I made it a point to get to know them and build a relationship because you don't trust somebody just because, you know, whether it's police or whether it's the military in a foreign country, I don't trust that person unless I know them. Um, you know, and so building relationships with not just the Iraqi army, but with the local townspeople, even just kind of fooling around with the kids, you know, give them high fives and, and whatever it was, um, trying to build a relationship of trust, like, Hey, yeah, I'm here. I'm here as a U.S. military to protect you against insurgencies, but I, I really do care about you and I want to protect you and your family. Uh, and I did. And, and I had some really great relationships with some of the people that were there. Um, a lot of the guys I stayed in contact with, I still have uh, emails from some people that I worked with, especially our local translators who worked with us, probably for the money at the time. But again, we built relationships. <laughs> and so I think it always goes back to relationships and anything you do. I mean, think about, I mean, you were an umpire and a coach, of course, but Think about if you never had conversations with the other team's uh, coaches as an umpire and you just went out there and did your job and you never communicated with anybody. It would be very difficult to do your job well if you don't have a relationship. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you'd you get swallowed up and I'd say most relationships are, are good and you have a few bad ones here and there, but even the bad ones, you've got to like coexist, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, well, Bill, you touched on it, so so I want to ask you about that as we kind of transition here. But you know, uh, back here at home, uh, there is just a extremely divisive atmosphere we're living in these days. Uh, there is this this uh, war on police. Uh, I'll say, and you know what? Deep in my heart, I truly believe there's more people that support our police than there are that do not. But unfortunately, we're seeing it every single day. I mean, cops have targets on their backs. Every single move they make is um, is is you know is broken down and overanalyzed. So, I mean, what what, what do you want to say? Just uh, speak freely on kind of your overall thoughts of just the the attention that law enforcement is getting these days back at home. Oh boy. This could get me in trouble here if I speak my <laughs> mind. <laughs> well, I think a lot of it honestly is um, misinformation and people just being uneducated about what police do and what they are confronted with daily. Um, I just think there's definitely an, an agenda being pushed from one side that's trying to create division for whatever reasons. And we'll go into all the politics. Um, but I don't think people understand basic combat. And I can experience, you know, I can say this out of experience because there's a lot of similarities. When a police officer pulls over somebody, they have no idea if that person is just a law-abiding citizen who is speeding or if that person has ill intent for that police officer. And so they have to be, kind of like I've already discussed, they have to live in that orange or yellow all the time. You know, I can't let my guard down because if I let my guard down for just a minute, it could mean my life. And so there's a certain intensity that goes into being a police officer, I think, that people don't understand. And then the other thing they don't understand is the whole lethal force or, um, you know, what it means to be a criminal and how they see 
life versus how the normal person sees life. And this was very evident um, in Iraq. And I'll just give a couple incidences because I think there's a correlation there between whether it's a hardcore gangbanger or these guys in Iraq who had the same kind of mentality. To them, life doesn't mean much. I mean, look at how they're living. They don't have much to live for other than the here and now. And so um, they're willing to do things that most normal people aren't and take risks that most people aren't. And so my brother uh, is a police officer, and so I hear a lot of stories, but he actually worked in the jails first. And kind of the unwritten rule for guys that would get arrested when they come into the, the pen was to pick a fight with one of the deputies. That was just kind of the unwritten rule. It's like, hey, you got to take your lumps to prove to all the rest of these prisoners that you're tough. So they'd come in, whatever, punch a police officer, and then the police officers would use their batons and knock the guy down, whatever. And that was like, hey, all right, cool, man, this guy's, He's one of us. He's a thug. That's great. And so there's a different mentality one. Um, and then the other thing that drives me nuts is the whole, when there is a justified shooting or actually a criminal or somebody is shooting at the police and then the police are, you know, obviously forced to, to shoot back. And then the investigation comes out. It's like, well, the police shot 120 rounds and the guy had 18 bullets in them. That's excessive. Like, why does anyone need to be shot that many times? And my answer would be, well, because he wasn't dead yet. And <laughs> if a guy is shooting at you, and this was the same thing in Iraq, guy's shooting at he's already decided, hey, we're, we're doing this, right? I'm shooting at you. I'm going to try to win and take your life, and then you're going to try to win and take mine. Let's see who wins. So if I shoot a guy once and he goes down, and then I walk over to see if he's still alive, he's going to roll over and shoot me. So I'm going to shoot until I know for sure he's not moving and he's done. And so that's the one that drives me nuts. Well, why do they have to shoot him 18 times? This is not the movies, like the movie Patriot, you know, when the guy's riding off a horse and the guy takes a muzzle-loaded pistol and shoots him at 100 yards and he dies instantly. That, that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a Marine who jumped on a grenade and lived. He's got the Medal of Honor now. So if I can jump on a grenade, guess what? You can be shot many, many times and still survive. I know Marines who have. So it's not the movies. And so that's the one that drives me nuts. The guy, you know, you make a decision to take on a police officer, uh, your life's in danger. I just how it is. Yeah, to me, there's a lack of accountability. And what's what's really sick to me, Bill, is that uh, e- even in a completely justified shooting, the media, the, whoever you want to say, they will overanalyze it to death. They have no concept of what it is like uh, to, to be in a split second decision. I, I, I honestly don't either, uh, but I'm not, I'm not usually criticizing police officers for those moments. And you know what? It, we cannot come to a better understanding as a society if, if we can't identify you know, good moments and bad moments. I mean, if, if people are so outraged – uh, I, I've said this before. If if you sit there and say every police shooting, every single shooting, every single use of force is wrong, well, then you're just as bad as the person that says every single shooting and every single uh, use of force is right. Neither extremes are correct. There's a there's a place in the middle, or, or maybe not the middle, but you know, <laughs> generally towards each other at least. Uh, we, we, we don't we don't think anymore we don't we don't see things clearly all we see is what we want to see instead of uh, what really happened at least in my opinion well and unfortunately it's been going on for several decades now and the kids that were getting it 
you know, when they were five and six are now the ones looting and rioting because of this. And I'll tell you a quick story from my coaching days that just blew my mind, but it just kind of shows you where our, our cultural culture is going. I was a school teacher for a while and obviously a coach as well. And, you know, back when I was a kid, if I got in trouble in school, I get it from my teacher and then I get it at home. Well, now you get in trouble at school, the parents drive to the school and they curse out the teacher and it's the teacher's fault and it's the school's fault. And so the kids can do no wrong anymore. And they've grown up with that. Uh, but quick, my quick story was uh, coaching baseball and we had a bucket of balls and Steve Martin was the coach and his middle name, I think is Allen. And so all the balls had S A M Sam for his initials. So, you know, a five-gallon bucket of balls, we'd, we'd have batting practice, and when we're done, you go gather up all the balls. Well, anyway, over at the concession stand, you know, the concessions where the kids would get a snack or whatever before they go home on the bus, I see a kid, and he's got a ball in his hand, and it's got the big letters SAM across it. I'm like, oh, man, hey, that, that's one of the balls from the bucket, you know, bucket of balls. We were just, oh, no, no, this is my ball. I'm like, well, what's your name? It's like, my name's and it's like Tommy or something. <laughs> I don't know. Well, okay, well, this says Sam on it, which is the initials for Steve Allen Martin, and it's one of the balls. You know, it's the exact same print as all the other balls. And so, I, you know, I take take it from him because he's like six. So I'm like, all right, here, I'm taking this ball. It's part of the bucket of balls. Well, anyway, a couple minutes later, this mom with kid in tow comes storming over, just screaming at me. My son says you took his ball. I'm like, well, no, it wasn't his. It was, you know, our ball that he probably found. You know, we lost it in the tall grass or whatever. Well, no, he found it, so it's his. I'm like, well, here's the ball. See the initials on it. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if the initials are on it. He found it, so it's his. And I was, <laughs> I mean, I was in shock. I'm like, what? I'm like, where's your car parked? I want to go find your car right now and take it home. I mean, it was ridiculous. <laughs> and oh, I just, cool. I feel, yeah, I felt bad for the kid. I'm like, wow, this is what this kid's being taught. But unfortunately, it seems like that's what a lot of kids are being taught. You are, you are dead on with that. I hadn't thought, I mean, I hadn't really thought of, I know there's a lack of, uh, you know, discipline in, in the home and everything these days, uh, everywhere, you know, at top to bottom really, but you are completely right as far as not having somebody or having parents now defend their kids instead of saying, uh, no, this is a teachable moment. You're right. Because like you said, we talked about your brother, John and your dad and how he's like, oh yeah, he deserved that. I was terrified to, to be, to be, uh, get in trouble at school or from my coaches because you're right. I knew I was going to get it again when I got home from both my parents. God bless them both. I mean, yeah, <laughs> crazy. absolutely. And I'll tell you a great story about that. So I remember a friend of ours was spending the night at our house and you know, we we're probably either late elementary or early junior high. And I can't remember. My mom probably told us, Hey, you guys need to go brush your teeth or get ready for bed. And this friend of ours was like, uh, I don't want to, or no, or something anyway. And my mom just laid into him. I mean, like spank, like just smacked him around. And I was like, Whoa, shoot. And then of course, of course, when he got home the next day, his mom did the same thing. So like, what'd you say, Mrs. Lee, you talked back to her and he got it again. Well, <laughs> Again, today's culture, we had a situation where I was, my wife was babysitting for a friend and this kid was just a complete brat, screaming, kicking. Uh, they weren't cursing, but it was pretty close. And they were telling my wife, like a lot of things that were just like, wow, like I just want to spank this kid. So we called the dad. It's like, hey, we want to spank this kid because she's just out of control. Either that or you need to come pick her up. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, spank her. So my wife spanked her. She's like four. The mom found out. 
Oh my goodness. You would have thought that we killed her daughter. It was unbelievable. How dare you spank my daughter? The next day the girl came says you're in trouble. My mom like said, you're bad and whatever and all these things. And I was like, this is unbelievable. It, it really is crazy. I mean, you know, I, 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 I am yet to be a parent bill, but I see so many, so many things these days, uh, being involved in sports as much as I am. I mean, you had, uh, the greatest generation, they came home from world war two, you know, they had a bunch of ba- baby boomers, you know, those people, and they went on and, and they had, you know, whatever <laughs> issues in the, in the, uh, let's see the seventies and sixties or whatever. But, but now it, I've seen so many great like memes and like little, <laughs> I see things like, well, all, all the kids who got participation trophies as, as kids are now adults and their parents themselves. So that's why things are bad. I see all kinds of st- all the kids that used to throw tantrums, their parents now, and they're doing the same thing. So, so yeah, I don't care uh, where people come from or, you know, what, what their culture is, any of that. It's like, it, it, it's all about the home and the discipline. And you know what? I, I, I was so mad at my parents growing up and the way they, they disciplined us and, and, you know, really restricted us. If we, if we acted up, we, you know, whether it was physical or not, we were disciplined and we learned pretty quick. Okay. If you do stupid things, uh, you know what, things aren't going to work out for you. So you either learned or, uh, or things got bad. So uh, yeah, I completely agree with you. I hadn't really thought about some of these things you're saying uh, just as far as, as kids and their parents now. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think it starts with the father, too. I mean, we're missing, uh, you know, just men and, uh, you know, taking responsibility for being the, the father, for being the husband, for just being a man. And that's the thing that uh, is really a passion of mine. I spoke a little bit about that at the church mm-hmm. I worked at in Virginia, but it's a big passion of mine, especially for you know, high school age and, and young college guys to just really help mentor that age group through, through this era that we're in right now, um, to be men, to be real men, men of God, you know, that stand up for right, that will protect women that will, um, you know, raise their children and be there and, and be responsible. And it's just, it's so sad to see how far off we are. Um, you know, the demasculinity of of our, our young boys is a big part of that. And, uh, it's just, it's, it breaks my heart. And so, yeah, just working, I'm actually working now uh, kind of in that direction with some college students now um, trying to give back in that direction. Cause I think it's so, so needed. Oh, 100%. I, I think there is an attack on masculinity these days. It has been going on for a while. Uh, I, I definitely, I can see, I mean, it's clear as day, you know, the type of work you do with, with men and, and, you know, the work you did with, with some of the guys when you were coaching and, and I'm sure they can all say that you made them uh, into better men and kind of tell what are some of the specifics of what you were doing with some of these, these young men in, in Virginia with the church and kind of what you're doing now is just kind of like a, um, a meeting, a Bible study type of thing, or, I mean, is it, is it just talking about, uh, what a real man's responsibilities are kind of, what are some of the, the specifics of the things you have done to, to do those things uh, as far as helping out with uh, building men? Because I, I agree with you, uh, men are, are under this attack these days uh, in kind of every Avenue. No, you can't do that. You can't act that way. You can't do this. And, and unfortunately it's really shown in our society. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. When I say, you know, masculinity, I'm not talking about, you know, because obviously with my background as a Marine and things like that, I'm not talking about 
guys that you know are carrying weapons and like have beards and like big muscles whatever that's that's not what i mean what i I mean by what i mean by masculinity is and i think the number one thing would be accepting your responsibility i think that's got to be the number one thing and so many men just don't accept responsibility okay so whether that's again for you know being married to one woman your wife or your kids raising them um whether it's the job or anything else, you know, taking responsibility, I think is, is the biggest uh, aspect of that. Um, And and it's just, you just see the breakdown of that so much, but as far as what I I did and what I'm trying to do. um, So when I was in Virginia, I actually, uh, when I first was realizing I'm probably going to come and take this position at Mount care and kind of start serving again in that direction, I really just felt uh, God telling me, he's like, well, what are you waiting for? Like, you can do it now. And so I literally went to our pastor and said, hey, um, I would really love to help with the young men and, and women at the time uh, in the church. And so I actually started working with junior high and then the high school program, the guy left. And so it just kind of all happened really quick. And they're like, well, we need a new youth pastor for the high school. So I had maybe 30 high school students and they're like, all right, they're yours. Like, go for it. And, you know, I started doing just regular studies with them. But then I, one day I sent out a questionnaire. I says, well, what is it that you guys want to talk about? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I kind of opened up a can of worms there and current events came out and some other issues. And so we got really into some deep, deep conversations. And I was pretty brutally honest with some of the young men and the way they acted and did things and really started getting more involved and started reading more and, and really studying you know, about that and found some really great mentorship books and things like that on what that meant. And the model that really, I think, is uh, the best model, of course, because uh, they talk about in the book I was reading, they talk about a Greek model and a Hebrew model where we as a culture have kind of adapted the Greek model where I stand up on a soapbox and I talk to a bunch of people like a classroom and you basically just teach where the Hebrew model was literally Jesus, you know, so like I live with, I work with. I walk with and we, you know, like, it's not like, Hey, this is what I'm telling you to do. Go do it. It's like, follow me, watch what I do and mimic what I do. And so that's kind of the approach I've given. Uh, even as a Marine officer, you know, I never expected anything to do what I wouldn't do first. And that was, that's kind of been my model. So I'm, I'm trying to do that now with some college students who are still kind of not sure where they're going in life. Uh, I got some actually coming up tomorrow and we're going to be talking about this and it's really up to them if they want to do this. Uh, I'll just be kind of a guide and the leader through it. And uh, yeah, that's kind of where it is. It's just been something that's been really heavy in my heart in that, in that way. And it's not something you can do with a lot of people. It's going to be probably three or four people that you really just kind of pour yourself into. And it's more of a multiplication. So then they can, do the same thing later where they grab two or three guys and, and just kind of multiplies instead of trying to talk to a hundred and hoping you can reach, you know, a couple. Well, well one thing you touched on there that I think speaks volumes is you, you first kind of themed it all around responsibility and, and having being responsible for uh, yourself and just everything around you. But, you know, being a leader, being an example, I think you could, like you said, you, you've been, you've led men in combat. You are somebody that, you know, if people look at, uh, especially after hearing things you say, 
I mean, you're living the life of the way of the things you have preached. I mean, practicing what you preach is the, is the phrase, I guess, but it, you know, it's true. I mean, and that's why I think it's great for like uh, young men at Rio Hondo who coach youth kids. You are responsible for your actions because kids are looking up to you and that never ends. I mean, as you go into young adulthood, people are looking at your actions and uh, there's a time to be a leader. There's time to listen also. But uh, no, I think that is all fantastic stuff. Uh, just in the simple terms, being responsible and then being a positive uh, example to others uh, in the things that you are, are teaching. Yeah, it's so important. I mean, saying something is one thing, but but living it is a whole different challenge. And that's where that responsibility comes in. You know, I can't expect somebody to do something just because I, I say it or I preach it or whatever you want to use the term. I got to demonstrate it, you know, and it, that's what it's about. You got to demonstrate what you want people to mimic because we are, I mean, it's interesting. One of the things we did in, in uh, the Marine Corps, we had, a, it's called a combat hunter. And one of the things we learned about um, was just the mimicking aspect. So when we would observe a village or observe, you know, whatever it is we're observing, um, it's called profiling and not, not in the sense of like, Oh, the way most people think of profiling, but you're looking at people and by the way they act, by the way they stand, by the way they do things, you can tell who's in charge because we mimic people in charge. If you think about it, I mean, you probably have a lot of characteristics of some of your coaches and so do I, and you can tell who's in charge in a, in a group of people by how people stand and how they look at them, how they lean, how they do all these things. And it was just very interesting to me. And it really tied back to what I'm talking about. It's like, Wow, not only the the characteristics of how I stand, how I talk, but everything about me is being mimicked. My character, you know, um, how I how I dress people, how I how I act in, you know, with my family, my my wife and my kids. And so I try to incorporate when I do have groups over, I have my family there because I want them to see how I interact with my wife, how I interact with my kids, because I'm trying to mimic. Now, I'm sure I don't always do it right, <laughs> but I'm trying to mimic what I, I would want, you know, the society and, and what it is I'm trying to, like you said, kind of practice what you preach. That is fascinating. I've never thought of that as far as breaking down, uh, you know, a group of people. And really, I've always been taught body language set, speaks volumes. It's, it's louder than actual words, you know. So so that's interesting that you guys are doing that while you're checking out a village or whatever, Uh uh, just just things that speak volumes like that. Really, really interesting stuff, Bill. Uh, I, I think it's I think it's great. You've really provided some uh, some great outlook here on the uh, uh, on just society and where we could get better for sure. Um, I, I do want to touch on, you know, a, a big impact you had on a lot of young men uh, was was helping out with the Rio Hondo prep football team. I touched on it earlier, but, but let's get to it. You, you, during, after your first four years, you were uh, available, you were coaching in care, you were coaching the, the Rio Hondo prep football team. We already talked about how kind of those guys were, uh, you, you know, they love you now. They didn't, they didn't love you then. Uh, you know, you were, you were tough on them. I mean, you were tough on that whole group of guys and they excelled, but what was it like, especially being like a, a Rio Hondo prep alum, uh, winning a football championship yourself and, and then being out there and coaching uh, that group of guys and just, you know, pushing them to the limits really. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoy working with young men specifically. 
And uh, it was really a, a highlight for me in my coaching career because I, I coached for quite a few years. Uh, but that was a special year. And because I had the opportunity to really push them, uh, yeah, you talk about the physical aspect of it, but really my whole, um, I guess, concept of what I was trying to do with them was to push them mentally. Because let's be honest, high school students, I mean, physically, they can do anything. I mean, you remember how it was. I mean, you can go eat a, a large pizza and 20 wings by yourself and the next day go run three miles and it wouldn't be a problem, you know, or whatever. And so the high school body definitely uh, can can do a lot more than I think a lot of people think it can uh, and definitely can recover a lot faster. I know for me, I just turned 46. So my recovery time has uh, not, not quite what it used to be. Um, but it was more the mental aspect because you know, and it wasn't just for the football games. It, you know, my, my mentality again was to teach them life on the football field. And so life's going to, you know, bring all kinds of problems your way. And most of the time it's again, going back to taking responsibility, but also being mentally tough through those times. And yeah, if you did something wrong, you take responsibility and you fix it. Or, you know, if something goes wrong, it's like, you got to pick yourself up and, and you keep moving on. And so those guys, again, at the beginning, you know, and it's, it's a process. So I wasn't just going in, killing them from the beginning. You know, you work up to certain levels of physical fitness, but again, I did certain things to test their mental toughness. So, and I think your brother touched on this. I think it was the last practice before the final game <laughs> where, where towards the end, and I did all these, all kinds of different drills and plyometrics and all kinds of stuff that we did to get them ready for, you know, football specifically. But one of the things I did was we ran the length of football field and back. And I can't remember the time. It was under a minute. Okay, you got this many seconds, so I'm going to time you. And if you make it, we're done. And sometimes we did it three times, four times, five times, and I let them know. And so this time I was like, okay. And I didn't give them how many times specifically we were going to do it. And I think towards the end of the year, we were literally just doing it like two or three times. And so I'm like, all right ready and i think the way i said it and the way they interpreted it was we're just going to do it once and if we get it we're done and so i'm like okay ready and it was a faster time than normal i said hey if you can guys get this time that'd be great ready go so they take off and they're flying and they come back and i'm like oh man you guys did it way to go all right let's line up like what like what do you mean i'm like line up ready go it was like (laughs) so in their minds they thought they were done and so I was kind of testing to see where they were. And so some guys on that second time, because of their attitude, slacked off and they didn't make the time. So we must have ran it. I don't know how many times, <laughs> but we ran it until they made the time again, which they had already made the first time. But again, it was getting them back to that mental toughness of, uh, you know, OK, you can't let your emotion. And I tell my girls this all the time. If you pull one of my girls aside and say, what is something your dad tells you all the time? I would, and this is what they tell you. I say, do not let your emotions dictate your actions. So your emotion, your emotion, yeah, your emotions are going to change all the time. Let's just be honest. We're emotional people. I go, you cannot let your emotion dictate your action. Your actions have to be driven by truth or purpose or whatever it is. It depends on the scenario but your actions cannot be based on your emotions. Cause it, can you imagine? And I think that's what's happening in our world today. Everybody's acting on their emotion instead of a truth or a principle or whatever it may be. 
And I think that's the big issue. So for me, it was really getting those guys to be mentally tough, uh, prepare them for, for not just the football field, but life. And obviously, uh, it must've paid off because they ended up doing unbelievable that year. And it was just such a fun time watching those guys grow. I'll call watching them grow from boys into men. And so it was just a great opportunity for me. Uh, something that I cherish and I would love to do again if I had the opportunity. So I, yeah, it was just a special time and a special group. Well, Bill, kind of one final thing with that 2005 Rio Hondo prep football team, you know, they were the first team to win an 11 man championship. The, the year prior uh, was a team where they lost in the finals. They had a very good team, a lot of great athletes on that team. Uh, if we're all honest, the 05 team, they, they probably weren't supposed to do that well. And, and, you know, you had a lot to do with that. They lost one game by one point, and then they, they won the rest of their regular season games, and then obviously the four games in the postseason. But I remember, I actually happened to be walking by. Sam tells me this story all the time. Uh, my dad was there. Uh, after they lost the, the game by one point, that very next week, you were pushing them pretty hard in, in practice, uh, especially with the conditioning at the end. But Sam, Sam said the whole time we're running, Bill, Bill's yelling at us, uh, Mr. Lee's yelling at us, you guys are going to lose on Friday. You guys are going to lose on Friday. You're not pushing it hard enough. It was something along those lines. And the next week, they just destroyed. I think it was Maranatha. Who knows who it was? But it was like 50 to nothing. And they just came out of the game. It was uh, on paper better than them. But uh, that was a memory Sam told me. Just you screaming at them. You guys are going to lose. And <laughs> I'll never forget it. Oh, man. It, it kind of goes back to when I played. Mr. Lenny, he didn't do it quite that way. <laughs> <laughs> but he would he he would come out and just his jovial self would be like, you know, this team's gonna be really really good, uh, so we're just gonna try to contain them. And he'd just really build up the other team. And in our minds, we're just kind of you just kind of fume. It's like, oh no, oh no, we're gonna we're gonna do it. And so that's kind of where that came from. Little different tactic because he was kind of calm about it, where I was maybe more in your face. Um, but again, it's that mental toughness aspect, and you can tell when someone's giving it their all or if they're just kind of, you know, loafing it out there. And so, and that was a lot of it too. I could see guys, you know, running and they might be great athletes and are fast, but they're not running their fastest or their hardest because they're athletic. And so they can get by with it. And I wouldn't let them do that. And, you know, your brother obviously wasn't the fastest guy out there. So poor Sam, you know, he's, he's getting the brunt of a lot of this and he might've been putting out hundred percent every time, but he's a little bit slower. So it's kind of like, he probably got a little more of the, the heat uh, just because some of the guys that were maybe a little more athlete athletic weren't, weren't giving it their all. So I'd give it to everybody, the whole team mentality, you know, you can't single them out. It's a, it's, it's everybody or none. Oh, absolutely. We, we, not me. Absolutely. And, and Sam, you know, Sam was a guy, him and I grew closer later in life, but you know, he was, uh, he took, uh, he took a lot of that from the lessons he learned. And he, every time he talks about you, he, he big smile on his face. And because he took that, he, he, after, uh, after high school, I mean, he got into running, he lost a ton of weight and uh, just, just became a guy who really took those experiences into his personal life. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I, I, I think he would love to, uh, he could talk about you a long time, I'm sure, about just <laughs> you pushing him and pushing that whole team. So a great experience. Uh, I told him uh, that I was going to talk with you, and he was like, oh, man, that's awesome. Can't wait to hear that. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> he's one of yeah. many, I'm sure. And he's forcing it because I don't have any personal stories about anything with him. Where I was getting in their face or grabbing face masks, and he wasn't one of those guys. So, from my <laughs> recollection, Sam, you you did a great job. You put out, and I didn't have any issues. <laughs> At least I don't think I don't remember grabbing your face mask or anything. But I did grab some other guys. <laughs> I love when when Mark said that he said, "Hey, to you, hey, I just need a guy to come on the sideline, kind of be loud and grab some face masks." I mean, that's <laughs> that's that's hilarious, and it sounds just like Mark. Uh, but man, today it seems like you can't even do that. I was like, "Hey, you can't grab a kid's face mask." That's uh. Come on, yeah, that that'd be that wouldn't go over well. And I'm like, no, this is <laughs> this, this is development here. <laughs> yeah, Whatever. well, there's a lot of things that I've done in my past that I'd probably be in jail for now, like that. Where, unfortunately, it's just what young men need. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, grabbing face masks was probably one of those. If parents today see that, it's like, oh, he's that's an assault, and I'd probably be charged and be in jail. I had another incident when I was teaching. I got a quick story about that. <laughs> was it, it, is a remedial school at a, in Azusa, and I was a substitute there once, and the principal just liked the way he handled the class. And so one of the teachers quit later in the school year, and they called me and said, hey, we want you to be the full-time teacher now. And, you know, the pay was good at the time, and I was young, and I don't know, I was probably like 24 or something. I don't remember. And uh, I was like, yeah, I'll take the job. I was like, I don't even know what I'm teaching. What am I teaching? They're like, science, life science. I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> and... uh <laughs> So they hired me. They didn't really care if I knew anything about life science. They just wanted somebody to be able to handle the kids. And uh, I kind of went into that with the same approach of teaching life um, through, you know, the, the, the material. And uh, I'll never forget, it was, I think, the second week I was there. And it was a rough school. You know, most of the girls there had kids, and the guys were either in gangs or used to be or their parents were. And it was pretty rough. And, uh, you know, they had police, police officer on campus. You'd come in and they locked the gate behind. Once everybody comes on campus, they locked the gate behind you. It was one of those kind of schools. And uh, it, was a, it was during my break time or my preparation time or whatever it was. I had an hour a day where nobody was in my classroom. And the door was swung open. It swung all the way up against the wall. And there was a guy leaning against it, uh, full goatee. I mean, these guys were like probably 19 or 20 going back, getting their GED. And... Uh, and he was talking with friends, and they were just kind of loud. So I came outside and said, hey, uh, you mind if I, I'm going to close the door? And he kind of did the whole machismo slow roll, like, you're going to wait for me to move because um, I'm cool. And so I kind of pulled the door, you know, pulled the door, and he kind of rolled off of it and uh, to get it closed because I wasn't having any of that. And he, he cursed at me. He's like, you know, and he knew my name. So he said my name when he cursed. And I kind of looked left. I looked right. I grabbed him. And I threw him in my room, and I closed the door. And, uh, you know, so no one could see what's going on. I picked him up off the ground and I held him against the wall. And I said, you know, I don't remember his name. I said, you know, in about an hour and a half, I'm no longer Mr. Lee. I'm Bill. And if you think you're tough enough, I go, let's see. Let's go behind the school building after school and we'll see how tough you are. And right away he was like, oh, no, Mr. Lee, it's not like that. Mr. Lee, no, we're cool. We're cool. And uh, anyway, ended up being one of the best students I had. And it was just one of those things where life lesson. And yeah, if a teacher saw me do that or if anyone else, I'd probably be in jail still today. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine that would fly uh, anywhere these days, uh, you know, but Hey, it, it, Hey, it worked. I mean, he got the point across and uh, a lot of people, a lot of, I mean, a lot of people run their mouths, whether it be uh, their, their own voice or social media or whatever the case is. But when it comes down to it, it's like, Hey, let's go, you know, maybe, and maybe not even a, a fight situation, but just like, 
uh, you call someone out or it's like people shrivel up real quick, uh, you know, when, when they're not the only ones talking. No, most people don't like confrontation. And this is a big fault of mine. I actually enjoy it. <laughs> so, so it's a huge fault. And I got a good Matt Hersman story with this. This is a great segue. Oh, no. So oh, yes. So I don't know if you remember this. So I think it was when you were in Archelae, the college program. And, uh, again, I had just came out of the Marine Corps, and there was a basketball league that you guys joined. Oh, no. I know where this is going. <laughs> do, you, do you remember this? You Baby. remember this? <laughs> so, and and I, I've heard some of your other podcasts, and, and you, you, you know, acknowledge this yourself. You are not necessarily a gifted basketball player. However, I would call you the Kurt Rambis of the team. So, you know, you're, you're going to dive, you're, you're going to dive, you're going to elbow, you're going to push, you're going to talk trash to get under people's skin. You know, yeah, everybody has a role. I get it. I, I love it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I'm honored. I am very honored, Bill. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and so you were doing your job very well. And there was this guy who was pretty athletic, pretty built, who just didn't enjoy your mouth or your elbows, I'm sure. <laughs> and so there was a play where, uh, you're probably backing him out on a rebound and being a little more aggressive than necessary, probably. <laughs> and he, and he threw you to the ground, you know, like literally like grabbed you and threw you to the ground. And, you know, he was twice your size and definitely probably twice your, your fighting ability and not saying that you don't have one, <laughs> but he, he looked like he could handle himself. And uh, do you remember this? I, I, I do. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So anyway, so uh, I happened to just be right there and, uh, you know, you popped up and I'm like, whoa, man, like, what's your problem? And uh, kind of stepped up and he's like, well, what are you going to do about it? And I don't know why or what. And again, not the most appropriate thing. And uh, I, I admit probably not the best thing to say, but, but because of what I was doing prior, I was actually a martial art hand to hand combat instructor for the Marine Corps prior to that. And I had a lot of skills and things that I knew how to do. And so I literally answered him with what he asked, the literal answer to his literal question. It was like, what are you going to do about it? And I said, I'm going to, I could kill you. <laughs> and <laughs> those were my exact words. Like, I, I, I could kill you. And he, he just flipped. I mean, like you said, most people don't want confrontation. And he just flipped. What did you? And then he yells, did you hear what that guy just said? Did you hear what he just said? And he was just like turned completely into a wuss. You know, I had forgotten that we were basketball teammates, Bill, as, uh, yeah, as that, in that adult league. And, yes, I, uh, you know, the roles you have in high school, uh, unfortunately, they don't always carry into adult basketball. And, yeah, I was still playing. I was playing the only way I knew. And it wasn't the, uh, the, the first time I was thrown to, a ground, to the ground by a bigger guy. I was always picking fights, it seems. So, yes, thank you for stepping in there and, uh, and, and being, being there for me. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah that was uh again not proud of what i said not proud of the moment but a funny story now 100 percent. i yeah i remember jumping up being like oh wait yeah we got bill here <laughs> oh man well yeah appreciate the confidence <laughs> Well, I, honestly, I probably would have done it whether, uh, you know, no matter the, the case, but yeah, it was just, that was the only way I knew. And yeah, I, I oh man, I was, I was quite the pest no matter what. <laughs> no, hey, like I said, everybody's got a role. 
And yeah, it's just interesting. Like you said, most people just definitely don't want a confrontation. And I, I was a big mouth runner too on the court. I mean, I played a lot of pickup ball at parks and stuff and I, I ran my mouth and that was part of my game because I wasn't the best athlete. So I had to get under people's skin to make them worse because they're <laughs> athletically better than me. So if I can get them again, it goes back to that mental toughness. If I can get them mentally out of the game, then I know I can mentally win, not physically, but I'll win the mental fight. And then therefore I'll win the physical fight as well. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I know a hundred percent. I'm with you there. And, and you were far more, uh, more athletic than I was, but yeah, it was fun doing that with guys. It's like, you know, just little comments like, oh, really? That's your best, huh? Or, or stuff like that, you know, just just anything that would uh, – I love little jabs and daggers. And, uh, you know, one thing I can say about playing adult league basketball with you, Bill, and, and from oh, what boy. I've heard from what you played uh, in uh, high school basketball is that, you know, you never really you never really met a shot that you didn't like. <laughs> well, not so much in high school. I'll be honest. I was not <laughs> – I was more of an athlete after high school because uh, I was a late bloomer. So my freshman year, I was 5'5", 155. My senior year, I grew to 6'1", but I was only 170 pounds, where my freshman year in college, I was 220, 6'3". So I'm like, wow, it'd be nice to have this body in high school. But, <laughs> but yes, uh, uh, I think the nickname was Black Hole. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know. I know you wanted to say it. I know you wanted to say I'm it. A but you didn't. I'm a gentleman, uh, Major Lee. I am a gentleman here. <laughs> but, but, but here's the thing, and because uh, I have a lot of self confidence, which actually is probably not a good thing at sometimes. But put it this way: if I shot the ball in my mind, it was going in. Yeah. There's never, there's never a shot I took just to take a shot, and I think. Again, it goes back to the mental toughness thing. And again, of course, I missed millions of shots in my my day. But in my mind, I had the confidence. And so, and I wanted the ball in my hands. Like if there was a last second shot, I wanted to be the guy to take that last second shot. And I think even though obviously as a team sport, that's not a great thing. <laughs> um, but that aspect of my life has definitely paid off in dividends in other areas. And yeah, you got to learn to be a team player of course and all those things and yeah i probably wasn't the best and the most fun person to play with at times because of that especially if guys are running their mouth then it was like no give me the ball like <laughs> i want to show this guy you know and i i, I thrive in those moments and it, it's I, I can play and have fun and as soon as the guy starts talking trash like game game over like turn up the dial turns up and like i turn into a different animal <laughs> and uh it's not it's definitely not fun to be around at times i will admit i know that <laughs> oh no it's a it's a personality uh anyone who's come across you that we definitely love and uh we know it's it's uh it's in the right place you know your heart's in the right place at all times oh that's great stuff yeah i i played pickup game i mean todd todd carson you talk about him uh man great friend of mine over these years now but uh, i played games with him and he always would run his mouth and he was so good and i was like you're like the nicest most God-fearing, uh, best example <laughs> of a person I've ever met. And man, when competition, the, the 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 switch flips, it's like, whoa, who's this guy? So it was like, I'm sure you were like that a lot as well. Oh man, and it's gotten worse. I'll be honest. I mean, even as I got older, like I said, I'm 46 now, and I still have to take. In the Marine Corps, we have uh, two physical fitness tests annually now. It used to be just one. Uh, called a physical fitness test or a PFT and now they have a combat fitness test or a CFT. Well, the 
the PFT was a three mile run, pull ups and sit ups, you know, maximum 20 pull ups, maximum 100 sit ups in a two minute time frame. And so it always turned into a competition, of course, because you got all these type A personalities out there running side by side. It's individual time, but it's like, I want to beat that guy. I want to beat that guy. And, and even as I aged, you know, I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm 40 now. I, I just want to pass this thing. I don't, I don't need to beat everybody. But as soon as that gun goes off or whistle or whatever it is, it's like, I can't help it. It's <laughs> like, I see a guy out in front of me. It's like, I'm going to catch him. And then I catch him. And then I see another guy. It's like, I'm going to pass him. And then you just go and you just can't help it. It's like, I, it's just an addiction. I don't know what it is. And this is no testament to my athletic ability. Again, I think it goes back to the mental I'll go out to a physical fitness test and, you know, these are like 19, 20 year old Marines sometimes out there who are just, I mean, you look at me like, wow, this dude's like in great shape, unbelievable. And I'd go out there and I'd beat them all. And they come out. It's like, wow, man, like, sir, like that was amazing. Like, and I'm like, it has nothing to do with my ability because I'll start to run and I'm starting to cramp up and I'm hurting. And, but my mind won't let me stop. It's like, no, I don't care. You can throw up, you can get a cramp, you can roll your ankle. I don't, you're going to keep going. And, and that was kind of the mentality and it's really paid off in a ways in my life to just, I'm, I'm determined. I'm not going to quit. Yeah. And, and I want to be the winner. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely reflected in, in your leadership in the Marine Corps as a coach. I mean, as a father, it, it, it's all connected. You know, it's all uh, your personality, Bill, is uh, is is unlike any, I'm sure. <laughs> and, but it but it's great. It's a I mean that in a positive way. It's just. Uh, you know, when you walk in a room, uh, people people notice not just because you're very boisterous or anything, but just you have this uh, this like you talked about when you, when you are observing villages or, or locals or whatever, you can just see it. And some some people, it, the, the body language speaks volumes the moment they walk in a room. And so th- that's those are my I haven't seen you in a long time, but those are the things I, I mostly remember about you. Well, I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you. I appreciate that. And. <laughs> And I'll be honest, you know, any attributes, positives specifically, um, are a testament just to how I grew up, the parents I had, the coaches, the leaders, the teachers, so many unbelievable lessons. And like I said, the Marine Corps is a part of that. But to be honest, it's a small part. When I when I came into Officers Canada School, um, I really felt like I had such an advantage, especially after we started started getting to know each other and watching and observing how other guys led. Um and just how they carry themselves. And, and I really didn't appreciate what I got at Carrie Thigan Rehonda Prep until I was put in that environment where all these guys are going to be leaders. They're all going to be officers in the Marine Corps. They're all going to lead troops in one way or another. And, you know, comparing myself, I guess maybe you shouldn't, but just looking at, at how they act and how they led and did things, I'm like, wow, I have such an advantage because I got to experience so many different things and, and, and so many different people that had taught me so many different lessons that it was just an amazing thing to really realize. It's like, I didn't know what I had until you kind of leave and, and start, you know, really putting it out there yourself. And so it was just unbelievable. I'm so blessed. And everything that I was given, I, I now, as you get older, you start thinking about, wow, I got to start giving this back now. And that's kind of where I am right now in my life, where I, I just want to start pouring some of the things that were poured into me into other young people and young men specifically. 
Well, you know, it's it's one of the constant themes I hear from people that I talk to on this podcast. Uh, a lot of it is obviously Real Hondo Prep and, and Carry Youth League people, but it's also other guys I talk to and have brought on and kind of uh, the, their development as a young kid, whether it's teachers, your coaches, obviously your parents. These are things we don't see right away. We don't understand at the time, but later on, you're just like, oh, I was being, I was being trained. I was being, uh, you know, learning how to be a better man uh, at all times in my life. So I, I, I'm right there with you. And, and Bill, you know, you grew up right there in Carrie Youth League was your literal backyard. You had great parents. You had uh, your, your two brothers, John and Ken, uh, who – you know, I mean, what was that like? Not only Carrie Youth League, but you got, I only had one brother and we were three years apart. You guys were all pretty close together, close in age. Three brothers having Carrie Youth League as a backyard. I mean, what was that like for you? Just just stepping outside and being like, there's ball fields, there's teams, there's a snack bar, there's there's all kinds of stuff there. What, what was it like as a young kid growing up there? It was unbelievable. I think uh, I'm probably, um, and a lot of my peers grew up the same way you know, Rick, Todd, and some of these guys uh, who were also, you know, right there. Um, for me, it was, it was just such a blessing. Again, you don't realize uh, how we grew up and what we had, um, just the examples of leaders, but being right in the middle of it. Uh, and I think as I got older, it was kind of like, oh, you know, I want to try something else. And maybe the Marine Corps has something to do with that. But, you know, if, if any kid could experience what we experienced uh, and had an opportunity to do that, I would say pay whatever it costs for the parents to, to put your kid in that, in that same scenario. It was unbelievable. Um, you had friends who you trusted with your life, uh, same with their parents. I mean, whether it was at a friend's house uh, in the neighborhood, you know, whether it was the Carsons or the Lunnies or whoever it was, I knew what I was getting. And they had the same beliefs, the same uh, character, same moral as my parents. Um, and I kind of mentioned that with my mom spanking another kid or whatever. It's like, you just knew that you were protected, um, in all aspects of life, not the physical, but you know, the mental, the spiritual aspect of life. You just had this environment that was so nourishing. Um, and again, I, I take it back to when I joined the Marine Corps, I just felt like I had such an advantage because of all that. I had all these great leaders who I got to glean from and, and, and pick and choose the different aspects of each of their lives that I could, you know, uh, put in my toolkit and use myself. So I think that was an amazing thing. And of course, with my dad and my brothers, my dad was an amazing person. I look back and I didn't even realize some of the things that he had sacrificed uh, for us. Um, you know, he was working, had to be working at least 10, 12 hours a day, you know, teaching, coaching. And then he also worked when we were little in the finance department. So like after we would go to bed, he'd go back down and balance the books and do other things. And I never felt neglected. Uh, he would go on summer trips as well. But I remember as a kid thinking that, man, my, my dad's like the greatest dad ever. And he would always spend, have time with us. I remember coming home as little kids, you know, and he, he'd team up with my younger brother, Ken, and then me and John, we get, and we'd play two on two basketball in the backyard. And, you know, when he was older and we were younger, you know, he could control the outcome. And as we got older, then John and I could dominate and then we'd have to figure out other ways to do it or whatever. But it was just a great environment to grow up, um, you know, with with care, with the coaches. Having two brothers was an amazing thing. My older brother and I are, are very close in age because I was uh, born premature. 
And so we're only like 10 and a half months apart because I was born, I think, two months earlier or something like that. Uh, so instead of being like a year apart, we're, we're very close. And then Rihanna Prep changed uh, its um, how they did things. They held people back here for certain reasons. Anyway, I went from seventh grade and joined my brother's class in ninth grade in high school. And so we went to high school in the same grade through high school, my older brother and I, which was an amazing thing. And then, you know, my little brother was only two years younger than me. Unfortunately, we never got a chance to actually play together. Um, I think he could have got the opportunity, but our teams were, were pretty stacked. Um, and they just needed him cause he was, he was an unbelievable athlete. Um, and if he didn't play JVs, they probably wouldn't have had a team, let's be honest. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, it was, it was just, it was great. And of course my brothers and I are closer than ever, just like you mentioned with your brother, we've grown closer over the years. Not that, that we weren't, we were very close even in high school, um, in college, and then, of course, you know, you kind of go your separate ways in certain aspects. And then once we start having kids and getting all the kids together and the cousins, and it's just it's it's an amazing thing now to watch our kids grow up and become very close as well. So whether it's my brother who lives in Oregon, uh, we just went up there to visit them a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, the kids get along. We, of course, we get along. And it's just and it's an amazing thing to to start growing up now with your own kids and watching them kind of go through some of the same things that you went through. Yeah, they're all in wonderful hands. I mean, with the three Lee boys, we had John on, we're going to get Ken on, uh, you know, all three of you guys, you know, John seems very quiet and just calm all the time. Uh, Ken, man, he's just like full energy, his podcast, he's just like, all wound up and all excited. And, and then you, you know, you're, you're one of a kind, Bill, you're, <laughs> you're, uh, <laughs> You just, you come out of, you come out of your shoes all the time. And you know, uh, that that's, those are just generic comments on the three of you guys, but it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's cool to see that you guys are, uh, you guys are great uh, men. Now your fathers, your husbands, you're a great example to all of us. Can't wait to have Ken on the program soon. Uh, he's doing great things with his podcast as well. Yeah, he's, he's definitely a personality. He's, uh, he just has that that charisma or whatever it is. And uh, people just love listening to him, watching him on his dad's den and some other uh, YouTube channels that he does. The, the kids uh, JCTV is also another great one. And we've been a part of that sometimes with our family and he just has that personality. He's just uh, uh, his personality just attracts people. He's got a huge following of all places in India, which is funny. They just love him over there. He's like a celebrity. <laughs> and uh, awesome. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's funny, but I mean, I'm talking like, I think he's over like 200,000 subscribers and I, I don't even know. I don't really, I'm, I'm completely technologically challenged. I mean, just this phone call alone is challenging for me. So I'm kind of an old school, I'm kind of an old school guy. Uh, you know, I, I still write things on paper. I, you know, if I have to read something, I print it out. I don't read it on my computer screen. I'm always having problems. Even in the Marine Corps, it's like, Hey, Lance Corporal, come help me. Like, how do you do this? He's like, oh, you know, sir, it's right here. You just press print. That's how you print. I'm like, oh, okay, thanks. You know. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. Yeah, Ken's got that gift though. He he's 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 very good with that kind of stuff. So I'm always calling him for advice on, hey, I, I need to get a new phone. Like, what should I get? Because I have no idea. I had a flip phone. Here, here's a funny story. I had a flip phone up until, oh boy. 
not too long ago. I mean, it's been years now, but I, I held on to that flip phone as long as possible only because uh, I just didn't want to come over to the dark side. <laughs> oh my goodness. That, uh, yeah. Hey, to each his own. I, I tell you, I know plenty of people like that. Uh, our phones have become these, these tools now where we we're so dependent on them now. So, uh, no, I, <laughs> I think that's, that's a, that's good stuff. Just having a phone be a phone. What a concept, right? Yeah. Here's another crazy one. I don't own a TV and we haven't owned a TV at our house for probably the last six years. Wow. That that's interesting. Okay. Uh, Okay. So, so what is it typically like? Uh, Okay. When most people are watching TV, so say at night, you know, dinner after dinner, is everybody reading their reading a book or you guys playing family game? What is it like? uh, You know, obviously there's stuff to do during the day, but yeah. What do you kind of do when when normal TV time is uh, supposed to be going, I guess, or whenever that is. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we do have, you know, a computer, of course. And so we'll sit down as a family and, you know, watch a Netflix movie or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, as far as the normal, like every evening and, you know, a lot of people grew up like this and I, I we were kind of falling into that same trap where you come home and you just kind of veg and watch shows until it's time for bed. And we made a conscious decision as a family, my wife and I, it's like, you know, we want to, we want to have our kids, you know, 18 years goes by fast. And so we, we wanted to be there for our kids in, in more than just the physical aspects. And so we developed a lot of different things we did. We have dinner together every night. And that was something that my parents did as well. And so that was, you know, taught by them. In the evenings, we all sit down together and we eat a meal together as a family. There's no devices. There's no TV. There's nothing. And we, we talk. And, you know, when they were younger, we'd have to help guide them through some conversations sometimes. Uh, now they're older. And so the conversations just kind of flow. And even bedtime, you know, we would have something that we did to help guide them. So we, call, I'm trying to remember what we call it. It had something to do with, with flowers because they're girls. But it was like, what's your rose? What's your bud? And what's your thorn? So basically, like, what was your the thing that you enjoyed most today? So that's kind of like your flower. And then what was your thorn? What was the thing that wasn't great today? And then what's your bud? What are you looking forward to that's going to blossom into the flower tomorrow? And so just little things like that that we did as parents uh, that kind of just – try to create more of a, a relationship, a deeper relationship. And, you know, I do studies with the girls, daddy, daughter devotions and things like that. And so it's been a great decision to kind of kick the TV out of the house. Again, not that we don't, you know, sit down around a computer and watch a movie from time to time, but it's not the focal point where, you know, you hang the big 72 inch TV in the middle of the living room and that's kind of becomes the focal point. And so we, we, we made the family the focal point instead. I think a lot of people can learn from that. I really do. That's a great example. Uh, all, all of those things. I mean, I, uh, everything you said there, I think we could all be doing more of, or uh, in TV case, less thereof, because yeah, there, there's not a whole lot of good things on, on television these days. <laughs> oh man. Good stuff, Bill. Uh, you know, we've touched on so many things. Uh, it, it has been a blast kind of going over just your career, uh, your family, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you are, you're a soldier at heart, but man, I got to tell you, you're a soldier of God, man. You, you, you are an example to so many people with how they should, uh, should be living their life and giving back to others. It's a, it's a fantastic experience sitting here talking with you. Thanks, man. It's been, it's been a pleasure of mine. And, uh, again, just pray that, uh, I can continue to be the example because I think that's the most important thing, especially as men. So any any young men out there listening specifically, 
it's all about being the example. And, uh, of course we, we fall and we make mistakes and we get ourselves back up and we just continue the fight daily. Amen to that, my friend. Well, well, Bill, I want to, I want to try something here. I want to give you an opportunity. I didn't tell you this before, but uh, you mentioned something at the top of the show, kind of, kind of, uh, you know, giving a jab at some of the other branches of the military. So no I want to, I want to, let me, let me ask you this way. And if it, and if we can't come up with something, uh, then that's fine. Okay. I want you as a Marine, uh, as a, as a Marine, uh, who's been doing it a long time. If five different guys walked in a room, one being army, one being Navy, air force, coast guard, and then of course the Marines, how, how would you, uh, could, how would you describe each in, in, in any way you want, how would you describe each one of those five guys, whether it be a restaurant or, you know, a bar or just a, <laughs> I don't know, it, the floor is yours. What would you say? Uh, oh boy. Oh boy. Now I'm definitely getting in trouble. I have friends in all the branches, but, uh, <laughs> but we, you know, we jab back and forth, you know, they call us knuckle draggers and all kinds of other things like that. Dumb grunts and whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I guess if I had to stereotype each one is what you're asking me, right? <laughs> uh, sure. Your words, not mine, but sure. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, uh, and I've actually, okay, I'll start with the Air Force. So I'll give them a nickname. How's that? We'll just put nicknames. So we call sure. them the Chair Force. <laughs> okay. So, you know, the Chair Force. And, you know, my, um, my wife's mother's husband. So I guess that's my father-in-law kind of sort of anyway, he was in the air force and he admits it. He's like, Oh man. He's like, we don't do anything physical. Like we get on a stationary bike for 20 minutes. And if you can stay on it for 20 minutes, you don't necessarily have to pedal. You just you know, balance on the bike. You're good for your physical fitness test or whatever. <laughs> I'm sure it's not that bad, but I'm, I'm exaggerating, but you said I have the floor. So, yes. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, good friends, uh, you know, Ben Jacobs, BJ Jacobs, you know, went Navy and actually went through buds and became a seal. But I know talking to him, cause we actually joined the same time and we did little workouts together and training. I know that in his mind, he's like, I'm not going to be in the Navy. I'm going to be a Navy seal because I do not want to be in the Navy. <laughs> and, uh, and I'll just leave that one there. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Uh, and then uh, the army, I think, has unfortunately again. There's a spectrum. I think there's amazing soldiers. Uh, in my time in Iraq, I've seen uh, both amazing, and then the army's so large, you're going to have a broader, a breadth of uh, good and bad. And um, but I think the av- if I took the average of each of those branches and those five people walked in the room and I said, hey, we're going to go. Uh, you know, pick a fight with one of these guys, who would you fight? The last guy I would pick would be the Marine. Mm-hmm. First guy, first guy I'd pick would probably be the Air Force. I'll be honest. Um, and then uh, kind of move down the branch branches, um, probably Coast Guard. I just don't know a whole lot about the Coast Guard, to be honest. I know they do. I know as far as the officers go, they, they have a lot of um, responsibility and basically are ship commanders, even from the very beginning, you know, small vessels all the way up. And then, um, probably the Navy and then the army after that. And then definitely wouldn't fight the Marine. 
<laughs> well, that's well said. I was just curious because uh, I know, <laughs> look, there's a lot of playful, uh, you know, jabs at, at the different branches, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, everyone's on the same team trying to do the, do, uh, do the good work that the military does. So God bless uh, everyone in the armed forces. And Bill, thank you so much for being here today. I can't tell you how fun this was. I can't wait to get it out and post it for everyone. Um, you know what? It, it, uh, it has delivered <laughs> as I knew it would. And just one of my most fun interviews I've done. Uh, can't wait to, uh, to talk with your other brother, Ken, and uh, maybe have you back on the program again uh, sometime down the road. Yeah, that sounds great. And I have to tell a quick Ken story since he's coming on soon. So Ken will attest to that switch that I was telling you about. Uh, we were playing basketball and it was just him and I we were behind uh, the pavilion by Carolyn Hall. And uh, he was running his mouth. I didn't appreciate it. And so we separated. I was on, I ended up on one side, he ended up the other, and we were just shooting. But he kept running his mouth. Well, he ran it one word too much, and the rage switch switched on to me. And uh, he'll, I'll let him finish that story when he's on. I'll leave oh, it there. That's, oh, a cliffhanger. I love it. <laughs> oh, I love yep. it. That's beautiful. Okay, that's pressure on Ken. We got to get him on uh, to be continued on that. That's fantastic. Uh, you guys are both still alive, so I know it didn't go too crazy. But <laughs> no, it wasn't too bad. But I'll, I'll leave it there. I'll just say the rage switch definitely turned on, and I'll let him continue because it'll be great. Oh, oh, okay, absolutely. And any, I, I know that basketball court where well, anything can happen back there. So, oh boy, well, Bill. <laughs> Bill, thanks again. It's an absolute pleasure, man. It, we, we went long, but you know what? Uh, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. I could talk with you for another hour. Uh, it was just so much fun. Give my best to uh, to Charlene, to Audrey, to Reese, to, to the Lee family. Just God bless you all, man, and, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Matt. I really appreciate it. I had a great time, too. Take care. Thanks again, Bill Lee. I can't tell you how much fun that was. It was a long interview, but I would not have it any other way. We could have talked for another hour if we were really honest about it. So thank you for all those funny stories, those inspiring stories. Just a blast to, to catch up with you. Uh, just really, really looking forward to the ending of that story you told regarding your brother, Ken. Uh, so I think we're going to have to have him on Monday morning to finish our interview uh, or, the, or that story. Ken Lee, uh, Bill's brother, will be on the program on Monday. Uh, that's the only episode I'll tell you guys for now that's coming out next week. But we'll take a few days off Saturday and Sunday. We'll be back on Monday. But Ken Lee, Bill's brother, will be the guest uh, on Monday. And he will finish the story that Bill left us uh, off with a cliff cliffhanger on. I uh, can't wait to hear that, Bill. So uh, thanks again. It was just a blast. That'll wrap up another week of shows, guys. It's been so much fun sitting down, chatting with everybody. Already looking forward to next week. I mentioned Ken Lee will be on the program. Uh, he actually runs his own podcast. He'll tell you all about that stuff. He's also in law enforcement. Uh, I knew him from, uh, again, through all these different connections uh, with Care and Rio and everything. But he's got uh, his interview is a lot of fun. He does finish that story for us. So be sure to tune in on Monday for that. A big thank you to uh, Anchor, who is uh, our sponsor, but also the avenue in which we operate our podcast. Guys, they really do make things easy for you. Uh, I was very intimidated when I started all this, but but here we are. 
uh, a few months in now of putting out weekly shows. I am not tech savvy like at all. And I mean that with an exclamation point. And uh, anyway, Anchor really does great job in assisting you and really laying it all out for you. So if you're interested in a podcast, uh, that's that's uh, the way to go. So check it out if you get a chance. But wherever you listen to us, whether it's Apple, Spotify or other podcast platforms, thank you for uh, joining us and making this show continue to grow. Uh, just just uh, very humbled by all the listenership. Guys, you can follow our show through various social media platforms. Our Twitter handle is Get Home Safe Pod. Our Facebook and Instagram page is Get Home Safe Podcast. And our email address is Get Home Safe Podcast at yahoo.com. Uh, you can reach out to us through any of those platforms, email us, whatever you want to do. We appreciate any feedback, any uh, thoughts on some topics, just anything in general. Guys, thank you for bearing with us this week and today, especially being such a long show. I wouldn't have it any other way. Bill Lee, thank you so much again. I want to thank everyone from this week. Uh, Shay Munoz yesterday, if you haven't had a chance to listen to her show uh, go back and check that out. We talked about the music industry as she's a singer. Uh, Bill Barnes, he was here on Wednesday. You know what that's all about uh, with Bill and his weekly Wednesday weigh-in segment. Uh, strong opinions from a retired law enforcement officer. Uh, Tuesday, Nick Preciato, one of the kids I used to coach. That was a lot of fun seeing him or talking to him about the transition and moving from California to Las Vegas. And of course, Monday was Jeff Andrews and talking to him, catching up with him about some of the things he's doing out in Connecticut these days and just talking some sports officiating and talking about some memories from our spring training time together. It's been a great week. Uh, today was phenomenal. Thank you again, Bill Lee. You're you're the man. You're, uh, you're someone we can all look up to and learn something from. Really appreciate your time. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in this week. It's been one for the books. And no matter what you're doing, guys, whether you're out on the town or around in third base, Get home safe.